Welcome to Shelved by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we're reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapters 1 through 9 of The Claw of the Conciliator. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I am Cameron, and with me in our woodland palace are Michael and Austin. Uh, someone's uh, slipped a, a little little piece of paper for me here under the door. Let me just take a can I just take a peek real quick. I know we're doing a podcast. Can I just take a peek at this little piece of paper? Yeah, we have the minute. We have time built in for. Looking I know. At pieces well, of paper. someone pushed a little piece of paper. I'm just gonna. Well, it says. <laughs> It says the lover I thought I lost is still alive and is like really nearby, actually. Like, right. I could just go. Oh, and it says it says there's a, a hoard of treasure there. Wait, also, what? A hoard of treasure. I wasn't interested until this point. A hoard of treasure. Uh, perhaps I should just. You know what? Uh, you'll be fine. Uh, can I borrow one of your cars? I'll be right back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. have fun with that. I've been bricked up in a house and I'm undergoing a vague and terrifying transformation. I'm the mayor. <laughs> I set up the fair. <laughs> oh, God. Can I tell you, I um, I remembered the stuff in this town being so good in the audiobook that after I read it, I went back on a walk and re-listened to it. Because the guy mm-hmm. who does the audiobook I've talked about before, um, Jonathan Davis, not from Corn. I wish it was the guy from Corn. Uh, <laughs> he just throws that in yeah, every now and again. His alcalde is so unctuous and like, oh, it's so good. The way you could feel him sticking his chest out to uh-huh. like capture the moment. Mm. I, and I think the alcalde is just an all timer, sick, yeah. shithead character. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's great. Uh, by the way, uh, if you're here to hear such words as unctuous and alcade, and shit, you've come to the right place. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and also shit. Uh, we've we've done it. Uh, we finished the previous book, mm-hmm. y'all. Mm-hmm. We did that, mm-hmm. and now we got a, we got a new book. Yeah, <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> I the beginning of this book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All timer, all timer, all timer opening. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Do you know? And I've said this before about video games, but I found that this might just be true about what I want from media writ large. Do you Mm -hmm. know that scene in Memento where the (laughs) it cuts to the dude and he's running through a bunch of parked cars and he goes, "Okay, what am I doing?" Because in Memento he doesn't have long term memory; he only has short term memory, and so each uh, scene is divided between a sort of flash forward and then the contemporary moment. And in the contemporary moment, every time a new scene starts, he has lost his his memory from what he was just doing a moment ago, and he has to reassert himself in the world and re reorient himself in the world. And so he's running through these cars. He's going. Okay, where am I? What am I doing? Okay, I'm chasing that guy. And he starts chasing after this guy through the through the you know the the cars and, and the, the parking lot. And the guy like stops and turns towards him and goes, Oh, he's chasing me. That is the best feeling in the world that there is. I adore the thing of what is this thing doing? What is happening in front of me? How do I make sense of the text that's in front of me in a video game, the systems that are at work in a film, the the visual language that's being used in a song? Oh, is this a bridge? Wait, they already, I already heard the bridge. What's going on here? That sense mm-hmm. of putting together what's happening based on the contextual clues that are at my feet, that is the best feeling for me. And I recognize now that this might be why some of the stories I tell 
bounce off of other people and why I need to have people in my life who say, Austin, you have to be more explicit about stuff. Most people are going to want to understand what they're hearing or reading from you instead of getting this sort of sense of confusion. But I love it. So when this book, when the last book ends and you're at a gate and some shit is popping off and then he stops to explain, like, oh, here, I'm going to pause. I'll tell the rest of the story later. And then this one starts with the name of a character you've never heard before. Morwenna's <laughs> face floated in a single beam of light, lovely and framed in hair dark as my cloak, blood from her neck pattered to the stones. Where am I? What's going on? I'm chasing this guy. No, wait, he's chasing me. Undefeated. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, I do remember reading this book the first time, and you know, I had it in the omnibus volume that we are, or that I am using. I guess mm-hmm. I think Michael, you're using the same version. Yeah, uh, them doing, and I was like, boop, 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 boop. Guy on a merry chip, hanging out, <laughs> going through the gate. Oh, an appendix. That's fun. You know, look at this little scamp. Oh, call the conciliator. All right, let's do this. I want to read a, you know, a couple more chapters. Let's see what <laughs> happened in that gate. What the fuck? I can't. What are you talking about? More Winna's face. And then literally having the experience of going like, wait, let me go back. More Winna, more Winna, more Winna. Okay, there's nothing, there, nothing. Jolenta, okay. Wait, let's, more Winna. And then literally having the feeling of, is the book printed wrong? Right. Like, is this some, <laughs> uh, is this an error or mistake? Um, And I actually remembered it because it's, you know, it's been a minute since I've read these books I actually had the experience of or, or the memory when I started this where I was like oh yeah there is a big break here and I don't know if we figure out about the gate you know I had the the distinct memory of initially mm. reading this and just being like totally out of whack forever and I guess I am you are out of whack for a while but it tells you what happened at the gate it does like pretty quick yeah it, like, I you mean, know literally paragraph two it's in the next page yeah it's right there um but also he does play with time nonstop in these early oh, chapters yeah. Where he's like, all right, I'm in Saltus, which is the the village that this takes the most of our reading today takes place in. Then you're at the gate, and then you're back to Saltus. Or okay, we're gonna go into this this bricked up home that Michael was talking about moments ago, and then we're gonna go ahead to the execution, and then we're gonna go back to when Severian was a child at the mausoleum, and then we're gonna go forward to the house again, and then he's gonna see Agia, even though we'd already kind of dipped ahead to learn about the execution of Barnock. That stuff is happening constantly, and you kind of have to either read really close or just kind of go along for the ride uh, and and understand that whatever you need to spend uh, pay attention to is going to be given uh, quite a bit of attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one hell of a power move. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> it is. Right? Like, authorial power move, which is a phrase that showed up in the Homestuck show, uh, <laughs> is here as well. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the stylistically, this book is quite different, I think. You know, I've seen some people in various places who have started reading this ahead of time, you know, ahead of our, our schedule, um, saying, oh, you know, the second book reads quite differently. And I do think there's some big stylistic changes uh, in terms of um, setting in particular. Like this, all that we read, all nine chapters that we read for this uh, episode – they take place in a fantasy ass fantasy yes. village, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And there's some of the other stuff that we have noted, but it is not the kind of jumping from levels of of paying attention. Like, what is the thing actually saying? There's no mirrors here, you know. There's no mm-hmm. there's no uh, botanical garden in the, these chapters, anything like that. There's a 
what seems to be like a mining village that could show up in a Final Fantasy game, you mm-hmm. know, with some steampunk shit on it, mm-hmm. you know, staple a bolt to it, hot, hot glue a pipe onto the, onto the, <laughs> onto, you know, onto the side of the building or whatever. And then the woods. Mm-hmm. There's, there's one image that might be more than that. Yeah. With the hundreds of thousands of people encased in crystal corpses, <laughs> which are like, my guess is cryopods or something, but that's moved past very quickly when he's on the elephant, you know? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is uh, uh, this is the beginning of Severian's D&D module, right? <laughs> yes. And there's yes, just like yes. plot hooks showing up left and right. Yeah. And he's like, I'm just minding my business. I want to cut <laughs> off this woman's head. <laughs> I would like to find some treasure in the love the, of my life. <laughs> you wake, you wake. You have received uh, a note from the village of Saltus who oh, asks yeah. for a team of executioners to come and destroy the dastardly Morwenna, a woman accused of killing her her husband and child, and 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 Severian, the you know the player character goes, yeah, I think I'm going to go look for uh, my best friend, and <laughs> and like you're flipping through the module desperately, going best friend, is there a best friend in here? And he's like, you know, my best friend Vodalus, and you're like, oh shit, best friend. Uh, uh, so you're hanging out in your hotel room. <laughs> And Vodalus's troops show up and they steal you. Uh, 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 roll. The I stand up in the back of the cart. I want to stand up to see better in the cart. Listen, you don't need to stand up in the back of the cart. You don't. I want to stand up. Okay. Vodalus's guys try to get you to stop. I draw my weapon. Your hands are tied. I draw my weapon. All right. Uh, roll to see if you can do that. Crit. I don't. I crit it. I've rolled a 20. All right, you know what? We're there. You know what? Uh, We're at Bodalus's summer mansion in the woods. We're there. Hey, guess what? You crit so good, you cut off the head of the guy driving the cart. But guess what? The cart keeps going. You're surfing on the cart. Are you fucking happy? All right. Vodalus was very impressed, okay? Yeah, you're there. You go through two you go through two trees and you're there. Vodalus does is he there. Remember All of me? his guys are there. Does he does he remember me? Uh, roll for charisma. Crit! Uh, he he he, rem- he remembers the very night you met. <laughs> oh, guess what? Hey, you remember the woman who was with him? She's fucking there too. She everyone remembers you. There's hundreds That's of people. That's the sister of my girlfriend. You. That's that- the sister of my girlfriend. Yeah, hold, I need to write it down. Hold, yes, that's let, let me flip. Thea, yeah, face. That's her. <laughs> She's very that's tall. Her. Now remind me again how curly was was your girlfriend's hair? Was oh it very curly God. or very just curly? A, mm-hmm. Okay, her hair is also curly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's also a very pulpy section. Um, yeah. The fight with the I mean, we should do a summary, right? But like, yeah. let's do it. You want me to get into please it? Please get into it. And just if you're if you're if you're listening and you haven't read this section, understand that the you zoom in on the summary that Cameron is giving. Many of these detailed these details are unfolded to us in a sort of lurid, pulpy style um, that we haven't quite seen before. Like, I don't think the fight that Cameron's going to describe feels like the duel of the Averns, for instance. It feels like a different genre mode. Yeah, there's a there's a point in this uh, in this reading where it's like there are some dudes on a cliff and they're shooting arrows at Severian. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's just not a thing that that would be described before right. in the, in the thing. It is some real you know traditional pulpy fantasy stuff. But okay, <clears throat> let me get into the summary. This is a summary of chapters one through nine of the Claw the Conciliator. 
Severian begins this story in a prison cell? Question mark. He can see a woman named Morwenna, and blood runs from her neck. He immediately flashes back to the end of the previous book and picks up leaving the massive gate. The tussle that ended that story was caused by five riders in the crowd, and he sees Master Malrubius and Triskel in the crowd. He realizes he is dreaming. He wakes up. He awakes back in the Madigan Tower. That's all on the first page of The Claw of the Conciliator. <laughs> then he wakes up a second time. Severian believes he's in a fantasy-ass village named Saltus. Nope, doesn't believe. He reveals he's in a fantasy-ass village <laughs> named Saltus with Jonas. We learn that Severian is plying his trade in the village and that a series of executions need to happen. A local leader has planned a fair around those executions. A few thousand troops with slings come through the village, headed to the north and the war. The innkeeper says his wife believes there isn't a war and that the troops are just going north to fight Vodalus. It is revealed that a common mode of punishment in Saltus is sealing people in their homes. There's a man who is sealed in his home currently, and after they remove him, Severian is supposed to torture him. The village leader tells a story of long ago when they did it to a woman, and she lived for many months, and then they killed her anyway. The village leader says that the execution of the spy, who is the person sealed up in his home, uh, Barnuck, is a warning to everyone else about spying for Vodalus. And he says the killing will inaugurate the fair. He, uh, the, the man Barnuck is dragged out of the house, and it is horrible. Severian is lost in memory, and when he returns, he sees Aegea's face in the crowd. Severian starts looking for it. He tells us he is writing. He then breaks out of the book to tell us he is writing it in vermilion ink in the house absolute. While looking for Aegea, he is served some tea by a merchant who tells him about a captured green man in the Cathedral of the Pelerines, actually the Cathedral of the Claw, which had been burned by the priestesses. Severian goes to meet the green man, who is literally a completely green man. They talk. The green man is from the future, and his skin is full of algae that feeds and nourishes him. The sun is brighter in his era, but there is not enough sun in Severian's time. The green man tells him that armed men are coming to free Barnuck. Severian breaks his whetstone and gives the green man half, then leaves. Severian goes to the execution site, careful to keep hold of the tradition that executioners do not use the stairs, but instead must leap up to the platform like total badasses. Morwenna is killed first, and she is accused of killing her husband and child, which she seems to be innocent of. Hathor is in the crowd. The execution begins. Severian brands her cheeks, breaks her legs, and severs her head. Giddy, he parades it around with joy. A woman named Eusebia speaks up from the crowd and reveals that Morwenna was innocent, and then she smells some flowers that she brought for Morwenna, and then she dies. Severian assumes Morwenna threw a poison she had hidden in her pocket or something into the flowers as she was being made to march the platform. Then Severian breaks in to say that he practices art across the land in his travels, and after this part of the book, he's not going to really talk about it. Severian is a minor celebrity in Saltus, and people like him because he's the executioner. That night, he and Jonas are eating dinner, and someone slips a note under the door. The note is from Thecla, and she explains that Father Iniri helped her escape the torturers and to fake her own death. She tells him she is in a nearby storehouse of the Autark, which is disguised as a mine. He races his way there and goes deep into the dark of the mine to follow a stream to where it emerges from the rock, where he is supposed to find Thecla. Instead, he finds a massive cavern filled with glowing ape-like men who roar and attack him. Not a couple, but hundreds. They almost kill him, but at the last moment, the claw falls from his boot, and he holds it. 
It expels a massive blue light, and his assailants bow down to worship it. He backs out of the cavern, troubled by the thoughts of the men who live beneath the ground, and something even louder in the deep. Severian thinks back to a time when he spoke to Master Gerlos. He calls Gerlos a coward and tells a story about how Gerlos once confided in him about being ordered to rape a client, an armager's daughter named Ea. Gerlos tells Severian that it is difficult and that he can use a powder to effectively do the job, but also that he never needs to use the powder. He also brandishes an iron phallus designed for torture. He refers to the phallus as an out. The orders for the torture are abuse, not rape. Or abuse, not abuse, not rape. And it is clear that the torturers care about the meaning of words. Severian is revulsed by the conversation. Then someone tries to kill Severian with fire crossbows as he leaves the cave. He gets behind the group and he realizes it is Aegea attempting to kill him with some other assailants. A creature whose hand he cut off followed him out of the cave and helps him fight Aegea and her crew. And then Severian reveals the claw to it and the stump where its hand once was. So the, the creature kind of holds its, uh, its uh, severed hand out and the, the claw gets near it. Jonas shows up and scares everyone away. Aegea expects that Severian will kill her, but he does not. Severian and Jonas go back to the inn and have a chat. Jonas realizes that a club he took from the creature with one hand is made of gold, which will help uh, him out in a big way because he has no money. <laughs> Severian finally tells Jonas about the claw and then asserts to Jonas that Jonas is an outlander, quote unquote, of some sort. Finally returning to the story that Jonas told at the end of the last book about the beans in the ocean. Uh, he asks if Jonas knows more about Erebus, Abaya, and even something terrible that Severian heard in the cave below the ground. Jonas tells him he might not want to ask questions he doesn't want to know the answer to. Jonas also tells them that all kinds of other wild shit about the history of Earth, like in two paragraphs, it just keeps going. And then Jonas tells him that Abaya, in the ocean, uses its mind to intervene on land. And then he leaves the room to sell his gold. Severian stops the story to tell us again that he has a perfect memory, which maybe presents a question of whether or not he forgot that he told us he had a previous <laughs> memory or a perfect memory in the previous book. He clarifies some of how his memory works, including the fact that he claims to have a perfect sense memory. This might suggest that his memory works slightly differently in this book than it did in the previous one, but that's not a, ju a judgment for the summary to perform. We'll do that some other time. Severian has the dream he had when he slept alongside Baldanders, and he assumes that it is an attempt by Abaya to draw him into a conflict on the sea creature's side. Jonas returns, uh, the hostage of some men, and then Severian is made a hostage himself. They're taken out into the countryside near Saltus. These men are employed by Vodalus. They put Severian and Jonas in a cart to take them to Vodalus, and Severian does some action movie shit and starts slaying these dudes. Then the cart breaks into Vodalus's woodland court, and Severian sees Vodalus, Thea, and like a hundred other guys. He does some other badass stuff, and uh, Vodalus recognizes him as the kid from the cemetery. He breaks the oath he made to the Autarch and rebinds his oath to Vodalus. And that's all that we read for this part. How about that claw? <laughs> really conciliating all the time. Yeah, it's doing a lot. Mm -hmm. Michael, what do you think about that claw? Uh, sounds like it's real pretty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got a real pretty light. Uh, I like how Severian, uh, is scared of it and doesn't understand it. And is whipping it out all the time. Yes, right. 
It's yeah. like, well, I appear to be like in possession of the relic of Christ. Uh, uh, back, back, away from me. Oh wait, no, you just want to worship me? All right. Uh, the uh, y- yeah, you know, it's like someone, someone's got some sort of precious object. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, I see. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. Stored in a boot. Hmm. <laughs> Uh-huh. A decorative boot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, hey, did is I did not pick up on this the first or second times reading the Duel of the Avern. Did the claw keep him alive? We we don't really know. I we mean it, know. it is it is deeply ambiguous, but we can talk about several weird things that have now happened in relation to the claw. Yeah. Um, that might be important. You know, so when hotly debated, you know, what happened when Severian was killed by the Aver? And I think we should say killed mm-hmm. because everyone says you died. Mm-hmm. You know, I think doesn't Dorcas explicitly say you died? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It killed you, something mm-hmm. like that. So he falls down and then he feels a pressure against his back and then he gets back up. And there's a great kind of artful thing going on there where he he there's a gap in his experience. Right, and the pressure right. he's feeling about his back is not someone pushing him. It's the ground. You know, right. he's he has a, a, a total break in sense memory. Now, we have just learned in the summary and in the reading that we did that Severian claims to have an unbroken and perfect sense memory. Mm-hmm. And so you might want to think uh if Severian has not just a moment where he's not paying attention, right, but a true break in actual memory, kind of eventual memory, the stuff that happens to him in his life, and then a sense memory break, what happened there? And maybe, you know, we know, don't we know that that's one of the powers of the claw? Is that not uh, bringing people back to life? Resurrection? Not that, I think that that's been yeah, mentioned. Yeah, it's been mentioned, definitely. Right. It seems clear that the man-ape, at least, or the ape-man, I think man-ape is what, it's man-ape, right? Yeah, it's some real Conan words. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, um, uh, that, that, that it seems like he was looking to have his hand restored to him with, from the claw pretty clearly. Yeah. Um, we've seen him do some other stuff. Um, we, I, it seems like it turned some water into wine in this section of the it's book. It's so funny. Yeah, like, it opens, it's one of the first things that happened. It's like, uh, Jonas realized Jonas Jonas was checking out all the supplies and you realize our canteen, which I thought was full of water, was full of wine. <laughs> yes. And we loved it. It was delicious. It was, right. And, and then it's like the it was, next day it was yes. refilled and it was just water that time. <laughs> and then we had other wine and it wasn't as good as <laughs> right. the wine right. that, that we had in the thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's a little unclear, too, about the. um uh, Jonas's mace that he takes from the man ape, the the, mm-hmm. the creature from the mm-hmm. underground, uh, is that? Uh, oh sure, right. Is has that been transubstantiated from lead to gold? Right. You know, one, of, one of those kinds of moments. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's um, fun. Yeah, this immaterial kind of alchemical transformation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think that we are supposed to be. But this is called the claw of the conciliator, and I do think that because it eats up so much time in this opening thing. I do think that it's worthwhile to look at it uh, and, and to think about that kind of stuff and uh, and to start thinking backward in the books about like, well, what did the claw do? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what, what is the power of this thing? And again, it can make like a thousand underground ape men worship you too, <laughs> right. which is pretty sweet. <laughs> right. Uh, well, first of all, you need to understand that they, they have sort of a, um, an ugly goodness 
uh-huh. about them, a sort of I, you, you might call it a noble savagery. He mm-hmm. doesn't use those words, but he all but does. <laughs> they're almost you look him in the eye, and they're almost like men. Yeah, it's like it's like there's something human here trapped in something horrible and grotesque. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's pretty weird. It's pretty weird stuff. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the, you know, H. Ryder Haggard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, um, oh, you know, uh, who, who, I mean, um, gosh, the Conan guy. Uh, Howard. Uh, Howard. Right. Uh, Robert E. Howard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is, uh, it, and the Tarzan stories, too, right? It's mm-hmm, all of these things kind of running into one another um, with the idea of, you go to a place, the place is unfamiliar, you uncover the secret city, the hidden uh, area, the mine deep down in the ground, and you look there and what you find is humanity but twisted. And lo and behold, in many of these stories, you know, especially places like, um, you know, uh, Haggard's King Solomon's Mines, right? Like, lo and behold, that's in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's a kind of deep um, uh, thing going on there. Uh, that that is raced uh, right. and imperialist, right? Very yeah. explicitly imperialist. And here, here we actually are getting a sort of reversal of that in some way. Because Severian's apprehension is, oh, this is what is ahead for us if we continue on yeah. the path that we have built for ourselves. Um, yeah, it staples it down to the time machine. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, there are more locks. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're more yeah they're locks. Them, That's exactly like what it uh, is. he literally gives us the the narrow, you know, the time traveler yep. <laughs> that, because he looks at the Morlocks and he looks at the Eloy and he goes. Oh, gee, golly whiz, you guys, if we keep running factories the way we're running it, things are going to be this way. Uh Uh-huh. Let's go to the far future. (laughs) Well, that's a big spider, isn't it? (laughs) There's a huge crab. (laughs) That's the best part of the time machine. People never read that, by the way, when he goes to Crab World. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of it, the Um, the sun is... And uh, actually, this is more... I'm, I'm joking my way to it, but near the end of i think not the final place that he goes but the second to final kind of far future that he goes to in the time machine the the sun is a big red dying mm-hmm. dimming orb up there um and so maybe this is actually more of a explicit reference than i thought um but but yeah all of that is there the if people are actually curious about this um there is a book that I'm Googling right now because I am blanking on the title of it. John Ryder's book, Colonialism and the Emergence of Science Fiction. If you are curious to read through the kind of uh, actual blow-by-blow historical stuff of what's going on in early adventure fiction, um, 19th century, early 20th century adventure fiction that then steps into the emergence of Science fiction, which is science fiction in the 20s, 30s, 40s, as its own distinct and robust uh, genre, that that's the book to learn about. So if you want to understand where these man apes are coming from, you could, there's a whole book about it. Mm-hmm. They're coming from underground. They are coming from underground, but let's talk about let's talk about Morwenna. Can we can we go <laughs> let's back? Let's go back to Morwenna. Like yeah. we're jumping around the way Wolf is actually in in this narrative. Yes. So it's uh, we're downstream, right? You know, <laughs> like what, I can't control what we do. I'm just following Severian around. But yeah, let's let's go back to Morwenna. Y'all tell me what you think about this whole setup in Saltus and the the minor celebrity that is uh, the reality TV star that is Severian. Oh my god. <laughs> Uh, uh, Real Housewives of Saltus yeah. Town. Yeah. It, that is what's going on. Uh, I think it's interesting that this is the story we get. Um, 
because at the end of it, Severian makes this point. Uh, I don't have the page number in front of me, uh, but you mentioned this in your summary, I think, Cameron, where he's like, uh, you should know, reader, uh, that throughout my journeys for, you know, the subsequent stuff that I am to write, I was doing this all the time. Uh, and I'm really not going to talk about that for the most part, unless it is something that has a direct bearing on the actual narrative that I am tracing. Uh, so I'm just giving you this one. Uh, and it's such a weird, complex, melodramatic thing. And like notably during the, uh, 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 whole deal, right? When he's doing it, like he sees Heathor in the audience, and we see like we Heathor has a very specific kind of relationship to Severian and Severian's like power position in the society or whatever, uh, and he's loving it. Uh, so I, it, it is really interesting that we get this confusing, murderous love triangle thing that appears to mm-hmm. be going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it is a jealous woman who yeah. ruins another woman's life, right? Uh, and then dies from smelling some poisoned flowers. That Severian has like this very like very uncharacteristic, right? Where Severian is just like, and I bet uh, Mer- Merwinna, <laughs> like, is it Merwinna who who he executes, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And yep. like Merwinna poisoned those flowers, I bet. And it's like you are awful certain about this. Well, the thing that happens is the other woman said, "Who's what's her name? What's the other lady's name? I don't uh, remember." Eusebia. You yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, is like she's innocent. Because if she were guilty, she would have killed herself. She would have kept a little poison on her mm-hmm. and would have not let herself die. Uh, uh, or you, she would have been dead before you got to her, right? She would have killed her husband and then, and then killed herself. Uh, so she must be innocent. Um, and, then, and then when she dies, she, he notices Eusebia again. She's lifeless, sprawled among a circle of onlookers. And and explains he's like I thought maybe she was like so happy that she died from a heart attack, but now <laughs> looking back on it, I'm pretty sure. Actually, he says outright that the alcalde had the bouquet examined, and there were there was a strong but subtle poison that he could not identify. So there is a poison on the petals of the flowers. Yeah, yeah. Just to give like a like a straight sketch of what what occurs here. So uh, Morwenna has a husband and a child, and like a, a little. Little yeah, Chad. His little Chad. His yeah. Is Chad. Little Chad at the pond. <laughs> That's right. She does have a little Chad. By the way, I'll talk about this at, at the end of when we talk about the section, but probably most beautiful thing in this thing that we have read, actually, or like the nine chapters that we read here. But the, uh, so yeah, she's got husband and little, little baby boy Chad. They uh, die. And Severian thinks it's because of bad water mm-hmm. that they, they, they just get poisoned in the pond. And uh, the town believes that she poisoned her family. She is then taken down to the river, which is a, um, a tributary of Nessus. So we know that, or not Nessus, of the Guile, the mm-hmm. river that runs through Nessus. So it's like dirty as hell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this like garbage river. She's taken down there and caged outdoors so that tiny gnats can bite her and torture her until yeah. the fair comes along. And so that she can kind of be... Um, the opener essentially for two other executions that will occur. The uh, and no one fucks with her, right? Which, which right. there's except some except for this yes. this woman, exactly right? mm-hmm. the the woman who was jealous of her husband, who wanted her husband, 
um, uh, I keep thinking Boethius, Eusebia, Eusebia, who is like standing down there at the docks all day long and just yelling at her and screaming or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Severian takes her up to the, we get to the execution. Severian takes Morwenna up to the uh, scaffold and uh, uh, he calls the scaffold, but it's really like a platform. I think when we use the word scaffold, we think of like a hanging or something like that. But this is a just kind of an executioner's chopping block kind of scenario up on a platform. You, Eusebia is right in front of them in the audience, and she's harassing Morwenna the whole time and keeps holding the flowers up to her and gesturing with them and saying, I brought these for you. I brought these for you. I brought these for you. Morwenna is like very, um, you, you know, Severian says that. Basically, everyone involved in the process of a, of an execution will break down at some point. You know, no one can be depended on except for 99% of the people being executed. Right. Like, they always right. have dignity to them. And but we have seen that so far. you can't trust the mayor to get you the chair you need. Right. <laughs> but, and so they end up waiting for that. And Severian says, whatever, fine. And so there are three things he has to do. He has to brand her face. He has to... Uh, break her legs and he has to to sever her head from her body that's the order being given and as we know words matter to the torturers we are given that so explicitly here um and it might be worth thinking about like words in a general sense in a bit but and we know from the whole last book that the word the letter of the order is the letter that you get right the exact thing that is that it, when you go to the mannequin tower and you are led in chains to it with a little tube around your neck, whatever is in that tube, even if, if it was not your tube originally, you're getting whatever's on there to the letter. There is no maneuvering. So Severian does all those things. And he does all of those things by he brands her on the he grabs her by the hands and brands her cheeks and then parades her around. Um, and then he. Right, her hands her, aren't even tied during all of this. Right? Her hands are not tied. They didn't bring a rope. Her. Right. right. Yeah. Which is also the other thing, right? Is like I think the the way I was reading it was like the point of having the chair is to tie someone to a chair uh, so that you can do the branding, do the little walk around, break the legs, and they're sitting in a place that will hold them up because it has a yeah. back. And without yeah. that, that becomes a much tougher proposition to execute. A hundred percent, and and it's for the better show, right? Right. Um, because Severian in the, in his thing. So he, he does the parading as he's supposed to, because, because the, the mayor guy tells him to, but he very quickly does the next two. It's not a show. Right. I mean, people love it because we get a very it's dim skillful. view of everyone. Yeah. It's so skill. And he knows what I, there, you know, it's, it's all in the language of the thing, right? He, he uses the flat of the blade to break her legs, but not, you know, it below the knee. Right. Like, imagine you're in a chair, right? Yeah. That That's the place where your legs get broken. That's the kind of show for everyone. He breaks her legs at the thigh, uh, and it makes her pass out from the pain immediately. Yeah. And in one, he, he does that, and in a second hit, immediately severs her head from her body. So, you know, without him ever saying it, and just thinking through the order of operations here, and exactly what you just said, Austin, right? What we can imagine the chair affords versus the execution without the chair. It is the the most um, forgiving version of the letter of the law. You know, right. uh, you know. Imagine us going back and, and thinking about what we read in the last one, right? Of of the um, of the torturer who's able to give two parties: one who want a bad execution, one who want a good execution. Everyone gets to see the thing they want, right? Like everyone gets a show, and she receives something close to the dignity of. 
a proper execution and a quick one without pain as much as possible. Right. But he fucking loves it. Oh yeah. He, I use the word giddy in the summary cause he uses the word giddy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit where he's like, all I wanted to do was just like jump around and yell about how good I was at this. It's all I wanted right. to do. Yeah. And Eusebia, as you just said, Eusebia then takes the flowers that she has in your hands and sniffs them real hard and then dies from some sort of poison. In it. And the narrative that's given is that while Morwenna, with her hands, or at least one hand held by Severian, yeah, right? Uh-huh. Like it doesn't match up to the thing that we were actually told is occurring where he's holding both of her hands in his left hand. But uh, while she's being paraded around at some point, she tossed some <laughs> some poison into the flowers, which I think are actually on the stage at this point. They're on the edge of the stage. Maybe that's plausible. I think the the, the flip of that is that Eusebia, is, she is planning to kill herself. Um, and she even keeps saying, Morwenna, these flowers are for you. Mm-hmm. And it does really kind of, of enter into a question for me uh, of, well, is there a scenario in which Morwenna smells these flowers, right? Like, is there some possible right. mess up in which she gets access to it and she Eusebia allows her to die on the stage rather than that? I mean, the whole thing here is really neatly knit together and also very confusing as to what the actual intended outcome is meant to be. And Severian like makes a point of preventing those flowers from getting to Morwenna, right? Right. He's like, right. this is part of him talking about how like you have to control this space, right? I I this is what the the role of of the the torturer is as showman is to like ensure that the thing goes off without a hitch and someone with flowers approaching is is potentially a hitch yeah and you don't want a hitch you do not <laughs> that's bad it's bad for the show but yeah the where we get a chunk of this right is at the very beginning Morwenna's face, the very beginning of what we read, chapter one, the, the thing that you were alluding to earlier, Austin. Mm-hmm. Morwenna's face floated in the single beam of light, lovely and framed in hair dark as my cloak. Blood from her neck patterned to the stones. Her lips moved without speech. Instead, I saw framed within them as though I were the increate peeping through his rent and eternity to behold the world of time. The farm. Stacky's her husband tossing in agony upon his bed. Little Chad at the pond bathing his fevered face. What what just a fucking tragic paragraph. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every part of it. And this is where he's at. Right? He's like, I got to kill this woman tomorrow. And what he's doing is dreaming about her family dying yeah. slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and he mentions also that, like, or you know, by his estimation, people in town are afraid of Morwenna. Right. Yeah. This is what I was right. trying to say before. Exactly. Yeah. This is why they weren't messing with her while she's in the, the stocks or whatever. Right. Right. There's like some like, it's never clear exactly why they're afraid of her, but also, you know, it, it provides that uh, she's the sort of woman who can toss some poison into a passing bouquet. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, right. There's something a bit witchy about her. And at the same time, uh, there's something witchy about Eusebia because she admits to having orchestrated the the whole thing or well. Yes, right, because that, that's what, what yeah. she's saying to Severian when she's, like, shouting up from the crowd. She's saying, I killed her, not yeah. you. Yeah. And it's funny yeah. because Severian yeah. says, I called down to her if you like. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> you thought. You thought that. Uh, but, yeah, like, so that's in, in uh, this was I was double checking this. Uh, the moment that he sees, I think he sees. Yeah, he sees her and then he sees a man beside her wave 
And it's like, it's such a weird moment, right? Seeing this man beside uh, this woman wave. And then he realizes that man is Heathor. Yeah. <laughs> right. So and, and uh, Heathor uh, is like that. You no, stop talking to him. That's my master. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, 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 the whole thing, I thought it was so fascinating that she's also at the end uh, because basically uh, her motive, she says, is that she was in love with uh, what's his name? Stachius, I think. Yes. Yeah, or, or Stachius. I don't know how you would pronounce that, but, um, uh, Morwenna's husband, right? She was in love with Morwenna's husband, uh, thinks Morwenna took him from her and so killed him and their son. And now the, you know, the whole mess is like taken out in a fell swoop, uh, in a more like straightforward, uh, if this were narrated in a more straightforward way, you can, you can like see the outline of like the short story that would have appeared in the magazine yep. of fantasy and science fiction, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. here's this weird little like drama that I intervened in and here's how it all kind of like played out. Uh, but here it's, you know, all pressed to the side. Um, and I uh, so anyway, the the thing that I think is really interesting is uh, Heathor and uh, Eusebia being a part of the audience there. Right. And we've already talked about Heathor and his kind of fixation on Severian's whole deal. Uh, and then Eusebia herself trying to take responsibility for what has happened. And then, you know, it takes her out, too. Yeah. And then we get this thing that we already gestured at, which is Severian saying, all right. I'm not going to tell more stories like this. I need you to understand this is happening in the background, um, which says something about Severian's understanding of his own reader, right? Because there are mm-hmm. versions of this story where he doesn't say that, but we, the reader, assume that as he travels, yeah, maybe he does a, an execution here and there to like keep afloat, right? This is where he gets his money. But here he says it explicitly. And he also says that the book so far has been most of his adult life and that what remains to be recorded concerns only a few months only. I feel, uh, even though the story is, is less than half over, which I, gu- I guess, dude, I, okay, I guess, <laughs> is that how, really how we, this is the moment that we're like, oh, this is not a, uh, a grizzled Conan on the throne from mm-hmm. the beginning of Conan the Barbarian, right? This no. is, he's just this old when he becomes the Altark, presumably. <laughs> Yeah. Most of my adult life, junior in college. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It, it has real, uh, uh, yeah, what's well, the end of my freshman year? Well, he's put something. the guy writes his, autobiography. The beginning of his adult life, he says, begins at the, the locked gate. Um, uh, and the locked gate is the beginning of the book. You were a little yeah. boy. What are you talking about? You were 15 <laughs> or 14 at that point. Yeah. Hey, now, he had those veins. And you know what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. You got, you got to do vein, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you're if you're telling me it's not vein oriented, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that just so to maybe we can think about some like what is this Morwenna story doing in here thing? You know, I, because I think it it's dropped in and then kind of left. Right? Yeah. We don't really mm-hmm. get a, a meta reflection from Severian about any of this stuff. So maybe we can think about that. But I do want to point out like the thing that is so beautiful to me about that opening paragraph. Uh, that is only revealed later, right? Is the is is Chad, little Chad at the pond bathing his fevered face, right? Mm-hmm. Severian says to Jonas that he's pretty sure Moenna Morwenna is Moenna. Morwenna is uh innocent and that it, it's bad water. That that's the bad water. Little Chad yeah. yep. is at the pond out front where they draw their water or whatever, and he is he's dying. Right, you know, he he his fevered face. He is dying from poisoning from this very water. He is going to 
the place that is killing him and they don't know it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that to me is and that's only unlocked later. That's only unlocked in two conversations that happen, you know, whatever, 30 pages later in the thing. And it's such a small thing, but it injects so much tragedy into the story itself. Right. Uh, in half a sentence. This is not going to be the only little kid that shows up in these books. Spoilers. Not really spoilers. There's other little kids that are going to show up. Um, and I think little Chad might be worth remembering for those. I'll That's always remember say. little Chad. I will also remember. I definitely won't. It'll be two episodes from now. We're going to be like, who was that little kid that died? What was his name? Come Chad! on. Uh, I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but yeah. What do y'all think Morwen is doing in this? Right. I mean, it, kind of undodgeable that this is the story of a jealous woman who kills mm-hmm. another woman and her right. family. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Others. Maybe you have other thoughts about it. My biggest thing is about uh, is about uh, kind of structurally, what does it mean to be an executioner in this world? And the thing that it means is to bring a show to town mm-hmm. that um, yeah. uh, and that's not really about the Morwenna story. So we can we can bracket that and come back to it if we want to stay. Well, on that kind of is about the Morwenna story. Right, I guess so. Right. Like the the thing that that we get in the middle of all this is, uh, you know, is it the tavern keeper who says now our Alcalde, he's a clever man. You know, he's, he's, he's not like one of us, like one of us, we got, we got a spy, we got a, a, you know, family killer. We would just kill him, but our (laughs) Alcalde, now he's, Mm -hmm. he's another level. And and what he's done is turn the whole thing into a dog and pony show has basically turned it into a fair called in people has said, Ooh, we're going to have a couple execute. You know what? Well, let's go get the guy out of the boxed in uh, house. Also, we'll get like a little run of, of executions. Bring the merchants in. Let's start selling some of our ugly, ugly, colorful clothes. You know, and if they're not good for you, let me tell you, Severian, if you don't like them, we'll dunk them in the pond, uh, which, by the way, is what killed that family. So, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and so, like, there is a. The, the way that you can see what the role of the executioner is culturally is really interesting for me here, right? And the way that the death of this family, uh, this, you know, this, this little um, uh, love triangle turned into tragedy ends up being, you know, uh, gristle for the mill a little bit, right, mm-hmm. um, is interesting. Uh, I would say, you know, you're, uh, there may be more things to think about on this little story of Morwenna and Eusebia later. Uh, but you know, what is it doing here? One of the things just to kind of unpack, I think some stuff that's been implicit so far, one of the things it does show us, uh, is that, uh, tortures and executions don't happen in a vacuum, right? Mm. Everyone in Saltus has some stake on what's going on with Morwenna, right? People are scared of Morwenna. There's something going on where people, uh, you get the sense that like, oh, we're finally seeing this woman who terrifies us all for some reason, uh, Mm -hmm. finally getting hers. Uh, And Eusebia is kind of only the loudest voice there. Yeah. has the most personal stake in it. Uh, but, you know, the 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 mechanism of the executioner, the Carnifex, right, uh, just slips so neatly into Saltus, into kind of actually specifically, as we you've also talked about, uh, the way that the Alcalde is running Saltus, right? He recognizes the social value of the public right. execution. Right, there's a social function being served here that goes beyond entertainment and towards 
the sense that, I mean, the Alcalde is such an interesting character because he's constantly doing these little things, right? Um, uh, he's, he's a real stick-out-his-chest politician to the degree, I mean, he said, you know, uh, uh, Severian says, whenever you give a politician enough time, they'll stick out their chest and keep talking, right? Whenever there's a break in conversation or you let them go a little bit, they'll inevitably stick out their chest and turn it into a talking point. But what he also is, is when it's time to go into the house and pull out the guy, he's the first in. Um, he's really good at being the big strong man, you know, populist type dude, right? Uh, and uh, I think recognizing that that is part of what the social function of the of the Carnifex is is about keeping people from feeling like things are boiling over, right? And in fact, you get a little taste of that on the scaffold, right? Part of what Severian notices moments before doing this execution is like, all right, he didn't bring me the chair. Where are the hot coals? The longer that we put this person on display, the more that the feelings about her will boil over and we risk mob violence, which is just true even off the scaffold, right? Mm-hmm. That like, yeah. oh, social order will fall apart is is what Severian believes if someone like this continues to exist you know, without the right punishment being, you know, uh, ascribed and then executed. Um, well, on the platform, too. Right? Exactly. If we keep this person yes. so, you know, the, if the crowd focuses on this scenario for too long and, and you know, weirdly enough, this is almost an exact mirror, uh, not a, not a, uh, not a opposition. Right. But like just a replication of what he told us uh, about uh, Agilis is killing. Right? right. Same right. same thing. He's he's holding on to that crowd stuff. And. Uh, and I want to read this really quickly just to because it's exactly what you're saying, Austin. This is the innkeeper talking about it's the section you've referred to a couple times about like how good our Al Qaeda is, you know, yeah, is he's the, so good. Is he's this smart. the hairless gnome of the innkeeper? Oh, my God. It, it is the just, hairless we, gnome. We just Severian have to mention is, that. Severian just comes out of nowhere. He's like the hairless gnome of the, the innkeeper, <laughs> the hairless gnome. He's just roasting this man. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he's roasting shit, and he's like, inside the inns and once more, I ordered breakfast and got bread warm from the oven, newly churned butter, pickled duck's eggs, and peppered chocolate beaten to a froth. Our hairless gnome of a host, who no doubt had seen me in conversation with Alcalde the night before, hovered over my table, wiping his nose on his sleeve, inquiring about the quality of each dish as it was served, though they were all, in truth, very good, promising better food at supper and condemning the cook, who was his wife. He called me sir, not because he thought uh, that uh, he thought, as they sometimes had in Nessus, that I was an, an exultant incognito, but because a torturer here, as the efficient arm of the law, was a great person. Like most peons, he could conceive of no more than one social <laughs> class higher than his own. Uh. That's a guy that, that like what a what a perfect portrait of, of a fella. And also Severian's what a dickhead. Well, Severian whole thing. really is turning into the D-list celebrity who thinks he's better than everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm Severian is. Only- on Cameo. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Severian is a perfect like $75 Cameo guy. 100%. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but here's the part I actually wanted to read that, that is in reference to what you're talking about, Austin. Um, he's talking about running the weekend, essentially, right? You know, we'll have three executions, one a day. It'll start with or, or two in one day and then one the second day. We'll, we'll pull that guy out of his prison cell home that he's got the first day to get everyone worked up. And then we'll go from there. And he says this tomorrow. You'll begin on Barnock hot irons. You start with usually, don't you? And everyone will want to be there. The day after, finish them off and fold the tents. It doesn't do to let them hang about too long after they've spent their money or they begin to beg and fight and so on. 
all planned, all well thought out. So the 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 he believes the Alcade is a good at his job because mm-hmm. he can actually dispense the crowd explicitly. Right. So, mm-hmm. Right. Sorry, sorry to go on a long tangent, but that is so clearly what you're saying is you know pushed right up in front of us uh, a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And nevertheless, the Alcade is so slimy every time he speaks. Um, yeah. As they as he as he does his big speech about not spying for voterless as he explains the thing about the, what happened with the woman who got locked in the house. So they do this thing that, that uh, you talked about, which is, and, and let me just make sure this is right. Because I mean, just say it yeah. out loud. It's one of these things, right? Let's like, sh- okay. And let's, let's formally just move into this thing. So okay. here's like the other major event uh, that happens in Saltus itself. There is a bandit. The bandit, is living in a house or has taken over a house. And the way to, to get them is you, you go in and get all the food out and all the knives and all the stuff that you might use in there to make it dangerous for yourself or to escape. And then you, you push huge bricks of stone in front of it all. And you, you seal it, you seal it up with, with, with stone, the windows, Mm -hmm. the doors, and then you wait. Yep. You turn the house into a into a box. Into a box. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. He's not a bandit. He's a spy for voters. I mean, I know yeah. that, but the, at the point, oh, okay. at the beginning of it, he's, he's calling him a bandit. He's the bandit's house. Is da 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 da. And voterless is a bandit, right? I mean, yep. yeah. Exactly. I mean, we also get a lot about voterless here th- throughout this. What voterless? Suddenly, what vote? What Severian thinks voterless is here to do. Because starts to slowly come into focus, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. a real return to the good old days uh, belief is what is what Severian mm-hmm. has. To so give up a voteless. weapon of the old world to uh-huh. take a weapon of the new. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's some good shit. <laughs> Politically, don't know what to do with that. Uh-huh. But write, writing wise, very good. Um, and so, yeah, that's the section. Though, though, I mean, speaking of voterless, the thing that we have to say is. Um, one of my favorite moments here is uh, uh, still talking to the – it's the innkeeper who's the one who says the wife – his wife doesn't believe in in the war, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to read from this too. This is right before the guy who gets boxed in and it kind of leads into it. Um, uh, Where does your wife think the soldiers are going then? I asked the innkeeper. Looking for Vodalus. That's what she says. As if the Altark, whose hands run with gold and whose enemies kiss his heel, would send his whole army to fetch a bandit. I scarcely heard words beyond Vodalus. And what follows is he he falls back into the the memory that he has of of uh, of the the cemetery that day of the necropolis. Again, he he thinks of. Again, I'll just read. Instead, I felt the bone-strewn paths of the necropolis under my feet and saw through the drifting river fog the slender figure of Vodalus as he gave his pistol to his mistress and drew his sword. Now, it is a sad thing to have become a man. I was struck by the extravagance of the gesture. He who had professed in a hundred clandestine placards to be fighting for the old ways, or the ancient high civilization Earth has now lost— has discarded the effectual weapon of that civilization. And he's like wandering through town in the, in this kind of reverie of Voldalus. And when we see him again, uh, the Alcalde is like, did you get some new clothes? And we didn't learn when he got some new clothes. He was, he, 
earlier he was like, I can't keep wearing the black because people recognize me. I got to go undercover. I got to like, yeah. you know, go be a little bit more. And we don't see that happen because he is thinking of Vodalus the whole time he goes shopping. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, you don't go buy some wonderful, colorful clothes while you're thinking about your uh, best Robin Hood friend uh-huh. and the one time you met him. Yeah, I, like uh, your one corner store encounter with a celebrity. I have to say, the other thing I love about this little digression of his is um, just uh, the way that he hits the uh, unfading memory thing. It sounds so, I don't know, like exactly the word, maybe condescending, right? Whatever I possess, whatever I possess, I would give to to become one of you who complain every day of memories fading. My, oh my own God. do not. Right. I'm imagining like the uh, little stickers or whatever that uh, Severian was making for deviant art back in the day. Like <laughs> if I could only be one of you who forget <laughs> things, but it is I'm my, unique. It is my curse. If uh, no doubt, if I had been one of you whose memories fade, I would have rejected him. That is Vodalus on that morning as I elbowed my way through the crowd. And so in some fashion would have escaped this death in life that grips me even as I write these words. Uh, so I'm like, I'm ragging him right but uh uh-huh. but it's also like this is a, a fascinating kind of construction it's one that has like literary precedent right this idea of being trapped in memory as being uh uh you know death in life or life in death like the uh this notion that severian has that he is so oppressed by his own memory uh that there is no real present right everything is mm-hmm. caught up in the past and this is following right on uh from this thing with Vodalus about like the old civilization of earth and the new civilization and like a transition uh-huh. between them or a giving up on the future as a return to the past yeah I mean, this is exactly I think you referenced it in the first episode of the show. I'm, I'm pretty sure, Michael, but this is Proust. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Search of Lost Time, it's seven volumes, you know, thousands of pages. Um, and it is someone reflecting back on his own life um, extensively. And, and, you know, the first two books, I think, only get him up to being like. 14 or something, you you know, the first 500, 600 pages or so. Um, But but, you know, everything he does, the kind of uh, character in the present time, everything he he does draws him back into the past. You know, the the smelling of uh, particular scents from flowers, the very famously biting into the the cookie, the Madayen, right? You know, he bites that and it like blows up his whole childhood (sighs) in his imagination. Seeing an airplane. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hey, 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 guess what? More than one person seeing an airplane. Um, (laughs) All of these different things, they drag him just straight back into the past uh, and and into his memory. And Proust also, right, like the the character um, uh, of uh, the main character of that book, um, can't kind of can't turn it off and very rarely comes back to the present, right? He's Mm -hmm. always locked into some sort of memory. And really... If we think about the way this book, you know, is written, right, we are always back in the past uh, because it's written by someone who every now and again says, hey, I'm writing this. I'm I'm hanging out. You know, I'm mm-hmm. there. My candles burning out. Right. My vermilion ink, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but then we go right back into the past and we get these double layers of the past where Severian in the present is writing a thing that happened in Saltus and is writing about while he was in Saltus how he had a dream, right? There are these layers of going back into the past or going back into other memories or uh, or not having a dream, but you know, thinking about Vodalus all the way back. And guess what? Think about this. This book opens with a dream within a dream, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's a man writing about a dream he had where he had another dream and he doesn't know where, when he wakes up. 
Um, and so I think Wolf is being very purposeful here in saying there are levels of narrative levels and mediation. And twice over the, these nine chapters, we get him saying, hey, just in case you forgot, I have a perfect memory. And it's not just perfect in terms of the events that happened, but I have a perfect memory for the things I felt. And sometimes those memories are so strong, it drags me back into those moments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- that's not an error. You know, Wolf is reminding us all of these things and giving these levels for some purpose that perhaps is not clear at this point. Mm hmm. Uh, going back around to this guy who got, uh, bricked up in the house though. I just want to touch on some of the other odd stuff that's happening there. So, uh, Severian is hanging out with the Alcalde. They're like breaking into the house or like, you know, opening it, opening it back up. What was, can we take one, 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 one step back here just really briefly because Austin was lining up the whole deal. Yes. Uh, just like eventually. Right. So. Um, the only thing that that is not done, they brick up the whole house and then they just wait for the person to die. Uh-huh. That's the normal thing that they do. But they have real the Alcade has realized, hey, we could make a fair around this. And so they're going to bust the thing open and then publicly execute the person. But also one time they tried that and the woman turned into a monster woman. Right. This is this was what I wanted to uh, <laughs> yeah, read. Gotcha. Yeah, right. Yeah. OK, please. Uh, because he's talking about the last time they did this. And he was like, oh, it was some woman. We called her Mother Pyrexia, but I don't remember <laughs> her real name. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking we, wild. You <laughs> call her Diablo Four expansion. Right. Like, it's like, <laughs> like, we don't know her real name, but here's the sick ass nickname we had for her. <laughs> um uh, yeah, so they like uh, and this is one of the reasons why the Alcalde it like feels like so unctuous, as Austin said, right? The stones were put up on her just like what you see here for it's largely the same ones doing it. And they did it in the same way. But it was at the other end of summer, just at apple picking time. And that I recall very well because of the people drinking new cider in the crowd and myself with a fresh apple to eat while I watched. Right. The- see, everyone has perfect sense memory. <laughs> <laughs> everyone can remember a delicious apple they had. It's not just you, Severian. <laughs> right. Uh and then just like character logically right here for the alcalde like this is the kind of stuff he does like uh, uh organizing the whole like execution and fair thing together like he is so uh like not like he knows about the social utility of doing things like this and he has no qualms right there's something mm-hmm. so unsettling about that i think to like a contemporary reader where he's like oh yeah the last time we did this like horrific torture uh it was apple picking season oh i had a really great <laughs> apple <laughs> um, yeah great all timer uh, top 10 apple for sure and then he says next year when the corn was up someone wanted to buy the house so they left her in there for a year Right. And then uh, the property becomes the property of the town. You know, that's how we finance the work. The ones that do it, take what they can, uh, what they can find for their share. And the town takes the house and ground. So, again, just sort of the the like blithe uh, machinery of this disciplinary uh, state. Right. Just like smashing up these people's lives. And he's like, yeah, it's just how it works. Yeah, we also get the uh, like the finances of it. We also get the when they're breaking open the house in the current moment. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, you know, our battering ram's a little small, but if we had a bigger battering ram, I'd have to hire more people. So (laughs) So he's like a Batman the Animated Series character. Do you know what I mean? Like he has the sort (laughs) of like just like a regular ass dude criminal type guy in in the Batman animated. I don't know why I have that, but that's what it is. Well, I mean, there's similar structural position because in Gotham City, the only people with any kind of vision beyond looking at their feet all the time yes. are villains and uh-huh. evil people, right? Like everyone else is just like, I guess it's gloomy again today. 
in Gotham City. I guess I should go down to the museum. What that, you know what I mean? And everyone else is like, I think we should open a new restaurant. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, the fucking penguin's doing it again, right? And yeah. So yeah, he's the one guy who can think in this fucking town, according to the innkeeper, right? And oh. so yeah, he's evil. He's objectively. But anyway, Michael, so you're, you're leading all the way to the final time or the last time they did it when he like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. Mother Pyrexia was in there. And what, what happened? So uh, he says, you know, we cut a ram and broke through the door in uh, fine fashion thinking to sweep up the old woman's bones and turn the place over to the new owner. The alcalde paused and laughed, throwing back his head. There was something ghostly in that laughter, possibly only because it blended with the noise of the crowd and so seemed silent. I asked, wasn't she dead? It depends on what you mean by that. I'll say this. A woman sealed in the dark long enough can become something very strange, just like the strange things you find in rotten wood back among the big trees. We're miners, mostly, here in Saltus, and used to things found underground. But we took to our heels and came back with torches. It didn't like the light, or the fire, either. And it's just like, what the shit? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Banger. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll never write a, a paragraph that good in my whole life. Like, it's just true. And if you if you aren't reading along and you're like, my God, what happens next? What happens next is Jonas comes up and like taps Virian on the shoulder and we completely change topic. Yeah. Like we do not follow <laughs> yeah. up on that. Oh, hey, they're here with the battering ram. <laughs> okay, great. What about? No, we're not. We're done with Mother Pyrexia. <laughs> Control F Mother Pyrexia. What's up? What? <laughs> like, uh, and it's so like, it's so creepy, so weird, so anomalous, right? Like. Uh, like, was there something up with Mother Pyrexia? Did she, in fact, become something? Uh, is the Alcalde, like, doing this kind of for show, right? Because we know right. he's a showman. We, he knows right. the value of this kind of thing. Um, or, and this is like, you know, reading forward a little bit or taking what we know from a little bit from the future and reading backward. Uh, very soon, with the man-apes from the uh, mine and everything, we are going to be presented with this issue of, like, people changing, Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like what happens to the human form uh, under certain conditions? Uh, And this is it happens kind of in two valences here where uh, we can read that. We we talked about this with like the noble savagery around the man apes. Right. That there is a a kind of um, way that uh, the the typically noble human form or whatever can become degraded. Right. And that has like moral. uh, uh. Echoes or kind of, uh, you know, particularly I'm thinking in, in like the religious context that we brought up a couple times, um, you know, the in, in like uh, uh, the Christian sense, like, are you choosing to be a human being or an animal? Right. Are you exercising kind of right reason uh, and uh, living up to kind of the image of God inside your own head? Right. Are you are you living uh, in that sort of way? Or are you living in like a more beastly way? Um, so there's that. But then. Also, uh, we are seeing here that that type of degradation is a thing that can be applied as a punishment right. socially. Right. We can put someone in the dark. Yes. Uh, such that they change. Uh, and there's actually a third valence here, right? Because there's 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 this dark light binary, right? Which is also in Votalist, right? This is a, mm-hmm. later on, he says, I too had dreamed of rescue by Votalist of a revolution that would sweep away the animal stench and degeneracy mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. present age and restore mm-hmm. the high and gleaming culture that was once Earth's. So there's that, right? There's the 
the dark man apes and dark mother Pyrexia, the bright Vodalus and the bright past of Earth. But there's a different brightness that we'll get to. I don't think we have to get there yet. But the green man presents a third way here, a third a third direction here, or a different understanding of what being br- living under brightness might look like, a future brightness mm-hmm. versus the imagined past brightness of of Earth's glorious good old days uh, when when the Altark, you know, shined brightly and everything. The sun was just brighter, but and we were not as degenerate as we were. We had the green man who is also positioned as inhuman in many ways, uh, but but the green man's vision of brightness is much different. Uh, they go in and get the guy, right? Yeah, they go get him. They go and in. They drag him out, and he's hairless. Yeah, yeah. Ripped all his hair out. Uh, and uh, he's he's yelling about how Vodalus is going to free him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Barnock. And he says there he's coming to get me. He's coming to help out. And. We we don't really know what happens to Barnock yet, right? Barnock is supposed to be the grand finale. Mm-hmm. No, right? we we know. Do we know? Yeah, he goes. Barnock would not be saved at all. I, <laughs> who should have been his comrade, would brand him, break him on the wheel, and at last sever his head. Right? Oh, yeah, I mean, funny. I guess I guess maybe we haven't seen that yet. I, in my mind, that had happened. That him saying that means I am going to fucking do. In fact, hmm. Yeah, I don't know when it happens. Presumably it does. Yeah, you're right. Because I'm going to continue reading this. I think this is also just some great like prose. I tried. This is right after, and at last seven. I knew his it. Head. I knew this would happen. By the way, where I said this, this whole show is just going to turn us into it's us reading good. the whole book. It's <laughs> so good. I tried to tell myself that he had acted perhaps only to get money, but as I did so, some metal object. So in my mind, I'm I'm imagining this is are just jumping forward. Severian is doing this, and he's like. I tried to tell myself, as I'm killing him, that he'd acted perhaps only to get money. But as I did so, some metal object, no doubt the steel head of a of a pilete. Is that one of the coins? Is that one of the – what is a pilete? Sure. I don't know what that is, actually. Um, struck stone. Oh, you know, maybe this is while the maybe this is while the thing is being extracted. While he's being extracted, actually. Uh, yeah. So the steel head of Palete struck stone, and I seemed to hear the ringing of the coin Vodalus had given me. The ringing as I dropped it into the space beneath the floor stone of the ruined mausoleum, and then and then. So I think that maybe yeah, he is he is being pulled out is when he's thinking about this. So yeah, we don't know. He's thinking to himself. I'm going to kill this guy. And then something, someone's like weapon hits the stone. And he's like, oh, remember when Vodalus gave me that coin? And when his when his attention is on this memory instead of the current moment, he then looks out and breaking through all of the, the, the hustle and bustle of the crowd pulling this man out of the house, mm-hmm. he sees Agia. Yeah, because the innkeeper says Barnock is meant to be the grand finale. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. They'll break him overnight and then the next day. Right, everyone packs. It's up like and you get a double. You get a you get a Saturday. We're gonna break his leg, and Sunday we're gonna cut off his head. That's a, yeah, that's that's the pitch, right? Yeah. It's like a two day show, and but he doesn't get that far, right? Like yeah, that. but so I don't know. But maybe not. He, maybe he does it in the gap. Oh no, maybe he does because he says, "Oh, I'm not gonna tell you about any more of this." Right, <laughs> right, right. He's like, "I did the same thing to the cattle guy, and I'm not gonna tell you anymore." Barnock happens in there, and then the the go to the cave thing happens right. after that. So that could be the case. But we yeah. know it has to have happened because he gets kidnapped because of it. That's right. Right? The Vodalari right. bust mm-hmm. him because, like, grab him because of this, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and he's like, oh, I, I, I didn't want to kill him. In fact, you know, uh, yeah. I forget what his I'm excuse your guy. I'm your, he does <laughs> you don't say know I'm your me, guy. but I'm your guy. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, but here's the thing, and this is the thing that's worth uh, listeners to know, you know, worth you to think about. These books are fucking confusing, mm-hmm. y'all. These books are not like it's not as if you know. Sometimes the way the way we talk about these books is like, oh, I, we have a very clear read on the scenario, uh, and sometimes we are actively piecing the thing together. And you are hearing us do live the work of like reading these books for me at least to be like, all right, so what? Okay, so here these things happen. And let me tell you, this is not going to be the last time we do this, no. <laughs> like even remotely. There's going to be a couple episodes for certain where I will begin the episode by going. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Can y'all explain this to me? Like, I, <laughs> I, I can tell you the events when they happen, right? Mm-hmm. I know exactly the episodes where I'm going to be like, thank God that, you know, I'll like half-ass it in the summary and then let one of y'all explain it to me. But so the we get the execution, the torture, we get all that kind of Before stuff. Before we, we get, get the letter, can yeah, we talk please. about the most important thing in these chapters? Um, Jonas. Jonas our the homie, dude. our fucking yeah. dude. The guy who says stuff like, you know what the octopus remarked when he got out of the mermaid's <laughs> kelp bed? I'm not imp- impugning your skill, quite the opposite. But you look as if you could use a little cheering up. <laughs> I know what like the a, fuck are you talking about, Jonas? <laughs> it's like what if like uh, the Catskill circuit existed yes. but in space? You know yes. what I mean? Like a hundred percent. And finally, there's a moment where it's in this conversation where Severian is like. You, what are you talking about? But before he can finish saying it, the letter shows up. <laughs> it's great. The, what do you think Jonas looks like? Groucho Marx with a robot hand. That's not true. But <laughs> but I can imagine him in every Marx Brothers movie as the Groucho character, wooing a well-to-do old lady. So... <laughs> No, with a robot hand. I actually, in my mind, do you know you've played the Dark Souls games, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm aware. You know that there's like the sad knight archetype, right? Uh The melancholic warrior who's like at Firelink Shrine or in the the Nexus or wherever, and he's like, "Well, the world's behind us now." (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. That's Jonas to me, but he has a robot hand. I don't know why that's the case, but that is, I think maybe because he was on a horse to begin with. A Mary Chip. Okay, a Mary Chip. Is a Mary Chip not a horse? Look, I don't know what, I don't know what a what is. He's on on an animal, you know? I will not allow Mary Chip uh, ignorance or disparagement to occur. Um, (laughs) Here's here's what's up with What do you think Jonas? Jonas looks like? I, I, here, I, the first time I read the book, second time I read the book, only this time am I paying attention to it. I have thought that Jonas was a black man this entire time. Mm-hmm. Is it just vibes? I don't know. I kind of thought he was like kind of like a crew cut military black man. I can see that. Well, he's a sailor, right? Mm-hmm. He's a sailor, right? That that was kind of my, but I don't know why. And like this time I've been reading through it maybe much more closely than I've ever read before because we're doing the show, whatever. And I cannot figure out why I thought that. I mean, whatever. I guess it doesn't matter one way or the other. But it, it's interesting to me that I had that impression and I don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. It's the sayings. Yeah. You have some sort of association with blackness and the like coolest idiomatic sayings. sayings. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. maybe, maybe, uh-huh. maybe that is it. I'll give you the pass on this one, Cameron. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know, 
fun. I just grew up in a time where, <laughs> you know, it was different when I was growing up. Uh, black people only spoke in idioms, Austin. I don't know what to tell you. I, you know, I'm from the South. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I can't, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, I appreciate the grace, though. Yeah. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't work, know. So. I don't know why I thought that. But you didn't think that. I so it not. is just me bringing it to the text. But maybe I missed a line where Severian describes his skin color. <laughs> I don't think he does it. He doesn't do that for. I mean, he, I guess he does do that for Aegea, but not. Yeah. yeah, not for Jonas. Michael, do you have a do you have a mental image of Jonas? Uh, I picture him as a, a very lanky white man uh, with a with black hair and a goatee, kind of a very goatee. thin. Yeah, um, mm. I do not know. And again, like I don't know why. Uh, there's something yeah. about Jonas to me that is like so perfectly a character who shows up who doesn't have to be like. This could have been a guy who said a couple things at the end of the last book and then disappeared. And then the fact that he is just like Severian's bro now and they're traveling yeah, together. They're right. So there's good. there's something about uh, uh, like the way that I pictured him as like someone who is supposed to be perfectly forgettable. Um, and yet, nevertheless, here he is again. Yeah, yeah. he's just some guy. And he's like helping uh, do tortures and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like he's the person who like preps the coals or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's just up there doing the thing he's supposed to do. Yeah, work working a day job. Oh god, I was trying to think of. I was trying to find the second most important thing here, but I actually found the third most important thing. The third most important thing is when uh, they're talking about the the spy in the the Volarian spy in the house. Um, there's this little sidebar where where uh, Severian is like, I he couldn't, you know, if he was really a spy for Vodalus, he could have gotten out. And he's like gassing up this dude because he he loves Vodalus <laughs> right. so much that he's just like, all his guys must be <laughs> sick. Um, the second most or the second most important thing actually is the revelation in here that uh uh maybe that's maybe this is later that severian has been shirtless this whole time mm-hmm. yeah not a revelation people do treat this like a revelation Did because this is one of the places that only apprentices wear shirts maybe i was maybe i was reading for other stuff previously yeah, no this is the first place where he says only apprentices wear shirts which gives you the obverse which is that no one who's not an apprentice wears wear a shirt or, you know you know wear shirts but the uh but no, I, I've noted it a couple times in the summary because people point to this quite often. It's like, holy shit, he's never worn a shirt. But if you listen to the summaries I've done for a couple You've of the previous pointing, episodes. But I thought those I've were moments he wasn't wearing shirts. I didn't understand no. that apprentices alone wear shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can I get a T-shirt that says "Apprentices Alone Wear Shirts"? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think most of the T-shirts we pitch on many of our shows are uh, they involved other people's intellectual property, and so we can't do. It. But uh, only, uh, you know, apprentices alone wear shirts. I think that's a. Uh, uh, I think that's one we can actually do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll whip up a design uh, for that. Yeah, if you could do that, Michael, and maybe put it in like, uh, maybe we could have like a like a Larry David font version, you know what I mean? Just like plain spoken one. And then maybe like a, like a neon eighties version. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, okay. Just to, just to, to do it. Let's anyway, go ahead and talk about, well, because yeah. we're talking about Jonas, let's go ahead and talk about the conversation they have way later. Um, sure. Because it doesn't really matter where we do that. And, and now we're in Jonas talk. We are. Um, and Jonas they talk is an constantly. outlander. That's the other thing is they are yeah. buddies. Like they really are like, it's the first time that we see Severian. Maybe Severian talks to somebody else about this before now, but Jonas is like 
hey, man, do you feel some sort of way after you do the execution? Because it seems like maybe you're sad about it. And they talk about that for a little bit. We don't have to dig deep into that stuff. That's you know pretty yeah. clear on its face how, how that goes. But like it's fun to see Severian talk to somebody about like something that isn't just my old girlfriend or I want to kiss you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or right. treating them like a child, which is his yes, relationship or with Dorcas. Right? Or where yeah. is my old girlfriend? I need to, I think she's here and she wants to kill me. Right. Different yeah, old it's, girlfriend. It's like the first, yeah. Jonas is like the first character that Severian spends any time with that is not, or like the, the interactions are not determined by, uh, some weird nebulous other thing that either of the characters may or may not know that is going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking like even like uh, uh, Talos and Baldanders, right? Like whatever is going on when they interact. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, those guys aren't going to be peers. I guess maybe that's the way to put it is like Jonas is like the closest character that Severian has encountered that is like a peer to him and someone that he can like just have conversations with or actually who is willing to ask him convert or ask him questions. Everyone else is kind of like working an angle on Severian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone else has got some shit going on. Seems Jonas like kind of just has nothing going on. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it seems like Jonas had things going on because part of what yeah part of what Severian clues in on is is he goes now wait a second it seems like you know more about the world than you let on sometimes there's this mm-hmm. bit that you were talking about where he says you're an outlander he says you're a strange you're stranger than I uh, you don't want people to know it but you're a foreigner of some kind he smiled a cacogen an outlander uh, and he says yeah I suppose I am. Uh, but you have a talisman that lets you command nightmares. You got this. You got the precious. You know what are we? What are we talking mm-hmm, about mm-hmm, here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and then they go on this I'm conversation. I'm just some Boromir. You're you're yeah. a little Frodo. <laughs> you're a little Frodo over there. Uh, and and you know they, they he talks about what happened with the with the claw and the pelerines and the the cathedral of the claw. I mean, it's not the cathedral of the pelerines. Let's be clear. It's the cathedral of the claw. So that's why they burned it down. Um, uh, and then he asks him these questions, right? He says, I have some questions for you. Wait, wait, wait. I got to mention a thing that you just glossed over, which is it made me laugh out loud. Uh They stopped. uh, He's talking about the the Pelerines. They stopped us as we were trying to get out. Jonas, do you think it's true that some people can read the thoughts of others? (laughs) Of course. Jonas, like, no gap. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Duh. Of course people can read the thoughts of others. It's so good. I got a robot hand. Of course people can read your mind. Anyway, sorry, but go ahead. He starts asking him questions. He asks him questions. And one of the things he asks about is, and you mentioned this in the summary, hey, there were these footsteps I heard as I was leaving this cave of the man-apes that scared the man-apes. And it scared me. And it felt big. It sounded big. I'd like your opinion of the footsteps. Everyone knows about Erebus and Abaya and the other beings in the sea who will come to land someday. Nevertheless, I think you know more about them than the most of us. And Jonas becomes closed and guarded and says, why do you think that? And Severian says, because you've been a sailor. And because of the story about the beans, the story you told at the gate, you must have seen my brown book when I was reading it upstairs. And says, like, you know, the stories you tell are like the stories in that brown book, um, which are interestingly described as being simplistic and childish, but in a way that have to be that because of the type of information that they're trying to explain, basically, that, like, you have to be in this um, uh, abstract, easy to understand, almost almost you know childish uh, 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 writing. Otherwise, it's it's in, in you know it 
pushes people away when you're trying to read it or something, right? Um, uh, and he ends up asking, okay, I got some questions for you. Uh, what do you think the footsteps were? Um, I mean, he says one last question that I won't ask you anything more. And then what he asks is three questions in a row. When we were going through the wall, you said that what we saw were, uh, were soldiers, and you implied they'd been stationed there to resist Abaya and the others. Are the man-apes the same sorts of soldiers? If they are, what can human-sized fighters do to our opponents when they're as large as mountains? Oh, and also, why didn't the Altarks use human soldiers? Why did they use Kakajin soldiers? Why did they use these monsters? And from there, Jonas has a bunch of answers. <laughs> yeah, it's the most direct conversation anyone's had about any of this shit in yeah. the whole mm-hmm. in the whole book. Uh, and I, that answer is awesome, right? So the last question first. So the last question is, why didn't the old Autarchs use human soldiers? The last question first. The old Autarchs who were not Autarchs or called that did use human soldiers. But the warriors they had created by humanizing animals and perhaps in secret by bestializing men were more loyal. They had to be, since the populace who hated their rules hated these inhuman servitors more still. Thus, the servitors could be made to endure things that human soldiers would not. That may have been why they were used in the wall, or there may be some other explanation entirely. Great. That's some cool shit. That's right, well, and Jonas explicitly is like, listen, there's only one of those I can answer for sure, which is the second one. Yeah. But I'll give you my best guess on these other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, and then he gives like this perfect like Machiavellian and like literally this is a Machiavellian tactic, right? Of um, if you are a hated ruler, one of the things that you can do is institute uh, uh, some sort of, I don't know, lower level bureaucrat, someone who basically is so much more repellent than you they will take the heat away from you and that will make your populace more easy to rule. Like Machiavelli right. gives this as a, a sort of prescript um, in uh, uh, the Prince. Right. Uh, and then also you get, you get animal man soldiers. I uh, did Machiavelli talk about that, that you get the, the sick hybrid fighting force. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's book four of the Prince. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he's talking to the Medici's. He's like, listen, I got some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Tiger he, he says, uh, the, in order to deal with your political enemies, your first uh, maneuver is the assassins, right? <laughs> so you can, right. uh, you contact the local assassins brotherhood, <laughs> right. uh-huh. you, you make a contract via dove, all, all that kind of stuff. things are permitted. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Right. They're, they're totally good. They're good to go on basically anything. Now that doesn't work. Number two, animal men. <laughs> um, you might get a lion guy. You might get an antelope guy. You know, you get a bear fella. Uh, all those kind of, and you get them together and look, here's the deal. People fucking hate an animal guy. Now, you know, some stuff hasn't aged as well as, uh, Gene Wolfe wrote it, you know, like mm-hmm. some things actually that are in this book. This is me out of this character of Machiavelli. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, some things that are in this book haven't aged super well. You know, Gene Wolfe had in his imaginary that people would hate animal men. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Little he wanted, did he know. He wanted people to love his OC so much, and all he he didn't understand if he had made Severian some sort of animal guy, that would have <laughs> yeah. been it. He would have been yeah. cosplayed daily. We're going to be in like the middle of the Sword of the Lictor, and we're all going to realize there's a bit like one off where Severian refers to like batting down his cat ears. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I swept my tail from beneath my feet where it had become tangled. And you're wait a minute, hold on, I gotta go back a page. Yeah. Let me figure. See this his perfect out. memory. He doesn't attend to his own body with his perfect memory because yeah. it's his own body. That's right. You know. Um, but yeah, and he also says basically that um, 
talking about Erebus and Abaya, he's like, look, most people can't even imagine this shit, and it's it's really impressive that you can. Little did we know. Severians had a vision or two. Mm-hmm. Some big old creatures uh, underneath the thing. Um, but he says really explicit here, explicitly here, and this is important to hold on to for later. Um, you mustn't think about them battering at the wall with their fists or tossing boulders about. But by their thoughts, they enlist servants and they fling them against all rules that rival their own. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, we, we've we've really been caught up in the book so far between like uh, that Abaya and the Autark are in some way, you know, um, at odds with one another. There's some sort of conflict there. And internally, domestically, in the Commonwealth, there is a argument going on or, or a fight going on between the aristocracy, a rebellant part of the aristocracy under Vodalus, and then the Autark, right? Those mm-hmm. two things are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but in there, there's like questions of agents and hidden beings. And that's like suffused through everything, right? Vodalus has spies. Now we know that Abaya is operating on the land through mental communication of some sort. Mm-hmm. Right. They, and this is this is anything. Cthulhu again, just to flag yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. 100%. So the uh, – and then he flashes back, you know, to his own – um, vision there, uh, the land could not hold us. The monstrous women had said, you know, he's thinking about those, those ladies who took him underneath the ocean and showed him his role as a, as a puppet in a puppet show, mm-hmm. you know, being, being manipulated by other people. Yeah. I love Jonas being like, you're so much cooler than most people. Cause most people, they learn that Abaya and Erebus are big and they're like big, like a ship. And you understand, <laughs> no big, like a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> you're cool. Severian. You're my bro. Uh, the middle part of that that I think we uh, uh, skipped over the thing that Jonas says is when they're talking about um, you know, so the question it, it, the order that this moves in text is the question of why are there like animal soldiers or whatever in the wall uh, then this next question about kind of what are the are the man apes animal soldiers and then into this question about Abaya so uh, Jonas also says he does not know if the man apes are soldiers like the the things that they saw in the wall, right? Um, he, he does not know that for certain, uh, but he does know that uh, people can, human beings can change. They can undergo what he calls a, a change in their essential nature as a result of their life in the mines and their contact with the relics of the city buried there. Uh, again, like, uh, like suddenly like, oh, like that mine that we saw, that was a whole subterranean city. Like Jonas just kind of knows that. Mm-hmm. Uh Earth is very old now. It's very old, and no doubt there have been many treasures hidden in bygone times. Gold and silver do not alter, but their guardians can suffer metamorphoses stranger than those that turn grapes to wine and sand to pearls. Uh, so that kicks ass also, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, we got, like, the, the genre work here is so cool, right? Like, Wolf yeah. knows how to double deal, because in kind of the, the science fiction-y, science fantasy, uh, far future kind of thing, you can read this as, like, um, you know, being exposed to mutagens or radioactive yep. material. Yep. You know, the FEV vaults have cracked open and all the <laughs> vault experiments have come out, whatever. Yeah. Right. That's happening. And also uh, by sort of framing it as guardians of gold and silver. Right. These these things that live underground and guard these things will be changed by them. Um, We also evoke like uh, uh, Lord of the Rings again. Right. This is Gollum. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
right? Uh, uh, guarding his precious, his treasure, and it exerts some sort of influence on him. And so uh, there's just this like wonderful ambiguity that the genre can work here between kind of the, the very scientific or sort of like, you know, for our world, like materially realistic uh, uh, explanation. Um, and then also with that in the same breath, have the, the kind of more uh, charged fantasy aspect to it. I said, but we outside endure the dark each night, and the treasures carried up from the mines are brought to us. Why haven't we changed too? Jonas did not answer, and I remembered my promise to ask him nothing more. Still, when he turned to face me, there was something in his eyes that told me I was being a fool, that we had changed. He turned away again and stared out and up once more. Bomb! 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 (laughs) Like, what are we— Come on! (laughs) <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. This is the stuff that is like, and you know, it's not remember always all the way this. back when I was like, what if Thecla is like a, like a big creature? Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe I was previewing a little bit. This, uh, <laughs> this section where Jonas is like every human on the earth is not what I imagine them to be. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, we get a lot of Thecla was tall in this section too, by the way. I didn't know Cameron, while you were reading where you would, was there a part of you that was like, Doing your post, you know, NBA championship victory, thinking about all the people who doubted that Thecla was truly tall. Because this is where we get things like, you know, um, there's there's a lot of uh, we're we're continuing as we go forward with the book that Severian will recall more about the time he spent with Thecla than what he actually showed us before. And in one instance here, there's a moment where he talks about how, like, depending on what food he brought her, what treat he brought her. In, in the prison, in the cell, she would tell a different story. And he always knew what type of story it would be based on what he brought. And one of them, if if uh, she brought, if he brought her uh, a fruit or something, um, uh, she would tell him stories about like garden parties at night uh, in, in the House Absolute with fireworks. And that when she lift her, lifted her hands to show the rockets like going up into the air, she couldn't because the ceiling <laughs> was too low. Her hand couldn't get high higher than her head because the ceiling was just right above her head. She's yeah. tall, folks. She's tall. Oh, you 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 even just glossed over the other thing that's in that where it, one of those she paces back and forth with one of the oh, foods yeah. uh-huh. and she can only move 3 steps. Thecla <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. is huge as hell and also this thing right after that where he says when uh basically when they had sex with one another, right? We're getting that very explicitly. This is like right after that the um yes. Jonas conversation his face only comes up to her boobs. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the <laughs> way that it is erotically written is like, oh, you think, oh, whatever, you know, his face on her breasts, whatever. Uh-huh. No, he is describing height. <laughs> right? She is extremely tall compared to him. They have cha- people have changed. Now Jonas is looking, looking yes, right at yes. him. The man with the robot hand, a canonically black man with a robot <laughs> hand, is looking right in his eyes and saying, you are to some other people, perhaps people from a different time or place or space, whatever. We don't really know what's up with Jonas, right? He's an outlander. Mm-hmm. But you are to some other parts of humanity as the man apes are to you. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Also, it seems like Severian forgets about the height when he's 
crawling through the tunnels of the man apes, thinking, well, Thecla must have come this way. My dude, it's too <laughs> tight for you. How would Thecla have come this way? Anyway, yeah. we should should we talk about, about the it. green man before we talk about the man apes? Yeah, I know we're jumping about the green man all and over the, the place, apes. but yeah. yeah. No, not really. We're 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 pretty consistent here. Okay. Um, yeah. This is the benefit of having such an immaculate summary at the top. It's People true. can follow we it like a every, map. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about the Green Man. This is maybe one of my favorite things in the whole four books. It's cool. I love it's it. cool. Uh, there, there's such a knowing play here with, uh, you know, the idea of the Green Man being the the generalized figure of the alien from pulp science fiction. Well, it's because, two things, right? Because yeah. it's that Green Man and it's the other Green Man. Uh huh. It's like the, the mythological folkloric. green man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you set those up for us, Michael? I'm, de- I'm deferring. Both okay. <laughs> aliens and folklore. Yeah, see, Austin's finally gotten in the groove, right? Of going, <laughs> hey, here's an idea that's like kind of hard and <laughs> I that I kind of know about, but I don't know a lot about. I bet Michael knows about it. Michael, you want to you want to do that? <laughs> like that's that's the range touch experience right there. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is after Severian sees Agia outside the house where they're pulling out, what is it? Bardock or Barnock? I can never remember. Barnock. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. Bartok is from. Anastasia. Anastasia. Yeah, the back. Yeah, Hank Azaria. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. <laughs> I was just thinking about this two days ago for some reason. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Severian leaves where they've pulled out uh, Hank Azaria playing a, a, a Yakov Smirnoff bat. <laughs> um, and uh, he's, like, running through the fair, like, trying, he's asking all these people, have you seen a woman who looks like so-and-so? And there, he gives, like, a great selection of, like, all the smart-ass answers people are giving him. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> They're like, oh, you want a woman? I can get you a woman. I can get you a woman right now. Hey, uh, uh, hey, lady. <laughs> like, uh, uh, but eventually he gets to a point where um, he realizes he's talking to some folks, vendors or, or whatever. Um, he gets, like, some tea from an old woman. And he realizes, like, the, the woman's gone, right? She's disappeared. She's gone, whatever. Um, and the woman says, oh, well, you know, if you if you lost her, that's that's fine. Uh, you can, like, still hang out and see some cool things at the fair, right? Uh, they caught a green man. Do you know that? Got him right over where they see where you see the tent. Green men know everything, people say, if you can but make them talk. Uh, <laughs> so just, you know, offhandedly, you know, green men, you've heard of those? <laughs> One of those things, we caught one. Uh, and uh, as you say, Austin, like the the green man uh, in like the, the British folkloric tradition, which um, I'll flag this because it's not quite I'm not a medievalist, right? I'm an early modernist. So this is like a, a couple centuries before my actual well, they period killed all the green men before the early modern era. Right. Yes, That's what exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I believe there's uh, some debate happening in the field right now. Uh, maybe even a debate is not the, the way to phrase it, but like uh, there has been some evidence uh, uh, sort of outlined that the green man is basically an invention of like 19th century historians, like Ooh. looking over. Uh, at, like medieval actual medieval documents, and then kind of like hypothesizing a sort of like a generalized figure. Um, mm, I, I don't know uh, to what degree like that, like where that the traction is on all of that. I just know it's a, a thing that I have like uh, sort of caught wind of recently. And like, well, my pro green man is real <laughs> button should make it very clear where I stand on the historical issue. Right. 
Well, and it's just it's it's a it, if it, if there is something going on there, I don't doubt it because uh, Victorians also love to make up some stuff about early theater history that when you mm. press on it turns out to not be true. It's like an idea that some dude uh, with a title to his name thought would be fun. And so he wrote it into a book of speculation and it got picked up as fact. Um, right. But for Wolf, Wolf would have known about the Green Man, the folklore yes, character. Right. Un, un, uh, uh, molested by these new derogatory <laughs> claims that he didn't exist. Yeah. Right. So ultimately it's, it's irrelevant because Wolf is playing off of the idea that does in fact really exist regardless of its historicity. Uh, yeah. and, uh, so but he's also like that little guy from the Jetsons, right? The little guy from <laughs> the Jetsons. Oh, 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 you mean from, uh, the Flintstones. Oh, Flintstones. The Flintstones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're yeah. The great gazoo. Yeah, the yeah. great gazoo. Got that smooth-ass helmet head going on. <laughs> or Marvin the Martian. Well, yeah. Who I yeah. guess is not <laughs> green, but the helmet is green, you know? Yeah. Right. Ooh, you do a good Marvin. <laughs> That's all I can do It's just the, his concern. Yeah. What if Jonas looked like Marvin the Martian, but with a robot hand? That's not good. <laughs> no, you don't like that? Good. Based on my previous beliefs yeah, you know about what? Jonas, yeah. I don't, don't want <laughs> to align this. That's pretty bad, that. actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the Green Man is both uh, uh, this reference to uh, the folkloric um, uh, sort of the idea of the Green Man in, in the British folklore tradition is this notion of like it's kind of a druidic presence, right? The man from nature. It's related to this I, the notion of the wild man, which was in fact a thing, right? Like wild man was a as a trope uh, in the medieval mm. period and later this Should idea keep the score at home wild man real green man fake yeah right uh, the, the man who lived in the woods was kind of like uh, the the other like sort of binary that emerges here right is the distinction between like civilized and uncivilized right, right. The, the we are people who live in the city uh in the town or whatever in the village right but there is a woods nearby and there are uh people who live in the woods the wild men who aren't quite people in the same way that we are uh which in some ways looks like a very practical, like we just don't count people who live in the woods as human, right? Cause there's like bandits who are living out there in the woods. And if you encounter someone in the woods, you can kill them. And if you say they're a bandit, well, you know, chances are that's probably true, right? They're not subject to the same civilized laws as us. Uh, but then also bleeds over into, Oh, you know, those, those people who live in the woods, they've got some sort of weird nature power. That's why they prefer to live more like animals than like men, uh -huh. right? Uh, these are binaries that are recurring a lot in this section, this uh, uh, distinction between human and animal uh, and, you know, the civilized and uncivilized or however you want to uh, frame yeah. that. And the green man like looks in, 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 you know, art and depictions or, or insofar as there, there are things that are categorized as being green men, uh, uh, in folklore and architecture and all this other stuff. It's like guy what has leaves coming out of his nose, right? Instead yes. of hair mm -hmm. as a mustache mm -hmm. or whatever. And like yeah. uh, uh, the, the Green Knight as depicted in the titular Green Knight, both I think the story and the film can sometimes look like mm -hmm. the Green Man. Uh, I think actually is maybe a Green Man figure in the legend in some ways, right? Like has a lot of overlap with those ideas. Um, or maybe maybe I, I'm now thinking of the wild men instead. But you, that's 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 nature, green man, and mm -hmm. then also great gazoo, mm -hmm. person from the stars who can see the future or who knows all because they're a person from the stars, right? Right. Other yeah. type of green man. 
So Wolf is kind of like seizing on these two echoes, uh, again, a, a kind of genre difference, one kind of fantastic folklore and one more uh, science fiction inflected speculation and pulling them together into one figure who is this green man that they caught and they're keeping in the fair and they know everything and they'll tell you the future if you can get them to talk. Uh, there's also a great moment where uh, she just mentions offhandedly that there was a cathedral that either zipped up into the sky or disappeared. It gets kind of muddy. I have uh, seen like interpretations where people say, so what she says is that the cathedral of the Pellerines, uh, the people who guarded the claw, uh, they burned down their cathedral. But then also another guy who's hanging out is like, oh yeah, I heard it like shot up into the sky when they burned it down. Uh, And it gets really confusing. Did they burn it down? Did it like lift up into the air? Who knows? Mm -hmm. I've seen some like uh, readings that assert that the thing that uh, Severian and Dorcas saw over uh, Nessus uh, that we talked about when Mm -hmm. I got into like the Augustine stuff. uh, I've seen people assert that that was the Cathedral of the Pelerines. I am not necessarily convinced of that, if only because Severian doesn't recognize it as such. Not that we can trust him on that, but also... um, there's an alternative reading here that I think is much cooler, which is the Pellerines burned down their cathedral because it wasn't their cathedral. They call it the the cathedral yeah. of the claw. Their relics gone. They don't need the cathedral anymore. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, it's right, yeah right? That's exactly what happens. Yeah. And, and the in that same paragraph or whatever, it, whoever is telling that story says that. Um, the person who told them the story demonstrated by taking like a little paper hat and putting it over a flame and it flew away. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a, it turns into a paper lantern. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, there are very few things in this book where I'm like false. This is false. But the thing they see in the sky is not the cathedral of the Pelerines. Mm -hmm. There's no universe in which I could think of that. Uh, for one, like, and here's the proof that I feel very dramatic about. Right. Uh, why would it disappear in an instant? <laughs> right, it, we, we would burn up, or it would fly away. Right, you would watch it go. Well, and mostly it, because we've we've heard what the cathedral of the Pellerines looks like, and it's not. Yeah, uh, it's not what we you and I think of as a cathedral. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's also not a city in the sky. Exactly. Well, and and I think potentially the thing that's actually happening here, the way I read this when I read this was the other guy who's like on the other side of the alleyway uh, or whatever. Um, uh, or maybe who who is it that actually says? Oh, it was the grandson-in-law. That's who it is. The grandson-in-law says, "Oh yeah, it, the it flew." Yeah, which is a great great title to have. Uh, is the one who saw it. Uh, and I, I when I read this, I was like, "Oh, did he also see the city in the sky?" And then hmm. this gets telephoned into, "Oh, well, they burned the thing, and then it flew up into the sky, and these two different things are being." Um, uh, you know, conflated in some way. Yeah, yeah. Um, it could be, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Well, because they do do the thing at, in that same conversation. They're like, it's a cathedral, but it doesn't look like a brick cathedral. Exactly. Like you would think of it. Looks like a different. But thing. the thing so, that Dorcas and and Severian saw was a brick city in the sky. Right. They did right. not say, "Oh, it's." Severian didn't go. I was in there <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> I drove through that. Yeah. yeah. No, he, he he seems to recognize it as something sufficiently different that he does not, in yeah. fact, recognize it. Right. right, yeah, right. <laughs> Two senses of recognized there. I stole from there. <laughs> right. I got to watch a Macy's fly over. <laughs> watch, a Sear, watch a Sears go over. I got my lawnmower from there. Uh, uh, so yeah, gr- more green man. Yeah. So then there's that. And then Severian's like, all right, I guess I'll go see the green man. Uh, and we got the the. um. 
uh, impresario, right? Who's out there like trying to Carl get everyone Barker. in. There's some great lines yeah. here. Knows everything, knows everybody. Green as a gooseberry, see for yourself. And he's like beating a drum the entire boom, time. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> it's brought great. from the jungles of the north, never eats, akin to the bushes and the grasses. The future and the remote past are one to him. Uh, so he like pays his money and he goes in, he sees the green man who is a uh, uh, trapped like essentially enslaved right he is like yeah. chained to a, a like stake in the middle of the tent uh and he does not look well and does not feel well and then they have uh, a really fascinating conversation yeah he's got chlorophyll in his body yeah mm -hmm. he's, he's a from... far future dude yeah they figured it out they'll just put chlorophyll in here and mm -hmm. then we don't have to worry about who has food anymore because we all just live yeah. on the sun and uh, then we live in peace and harmony and whatnot and we time travel back to the worst time on Earth. <laughs> For the hell of it. Well, like, it to seems learn. like he's made yeah. a bad mistake, right? That he, like, I thought I was going to come here and look around at all you guys and, like, kind of laugh at what the situation was. Uh, but boy, here's where I am. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and he's, he's I mean, it's, it's clear that Severian, Severian believes that there's something going on with this guy, but it takes him a little while to get bought in on the idea, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing that the thing that brings him in finally is the green man says that the day is brighter in his age, and like that's why mm -hmm. he suffers here. It's why he isn't strong here. Is that the sun is? It's like a it's like a Superman situation, right? Mm -hmm. He needs the bright yellow sun of of our time, but he only has the red sun of the the terrible dying Earth. That Severian lives in. Uh, uh, and so Severian is, in fact, thrilled by the revelation that there is a future in which the sun seems to have ignited again. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and that brings him in on this a little bit more, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's part of that kind of what, what I think both of you have brought up in separate episodes about the kind of passive religiosity of all these people, mm -hmm. you know, of everyone that we encounter that is tied up with the autark and the increate and the pancreator and all this kind of stuff, right? All that's kind of melange together for them. But, uh, you know, Severian really gives us someone who does not spend a lot of time so far in these books thinking about religion or thinking about faith or prophecy or anything like that. He immediately keys in. He's like, oh, so the new sun came is what you're telling me, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And so like everyone's kind of passively religious, but like when prophecy starts getting talked about and, you know, when the kind of revelatory religious operation starts happening, Severian becomes pretty religious pretty quick, you know, in terms of it's just part of his worldview. He thinks this is a, a possibility and it's going to happen. And it did. Well, the woman we just talked about, the who made the tea, the old yes. woman uh, has this because she early in that conversation, she's like, Myself, I don't believe, or rather, I think that if the pan creator don't care nothing for me, I won't care nothing for him, and why should I? And then by the end of the conversation, the next page, she is scolding her grandson-in-law for not understanding that she says, um, that shows what it is. He says uh, uh, that it, was, it, was, it wasn't a miracle that the cathedral ro rose. There's no miracle at all, because look, I can do it with a little paper hat. If I stick mm -hmm. fire underneath the paper hat, the fire creates an updraft and the paper hat lifts. And so she says, that shows what it is to be a fool. It never came to him that the reason things were made so that the cathedral would rise up like it did. Uh, the things were made so that the cathedral would rise mm -hmm, up like it is. Mm -hmm. He can't see the capital H hand in nature. And it's like, 
a second ago, you were shit-talking God. You were dropping a diss track on the pan creator and saying, like, who cares about the pan creator? But really what you're saying is the pan creator is, in your mind, the pan creator is nature or has set nature, but is not an active agent that needs, that interferes in daily life or that you feel you need to ask for intercession or something, you know? Yeah. Um, Which does this really cool thing of thinking about, well, does the new sun come because some, right. you know, uh, you know, science ba- does Father Inyere figure out the new sun? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. is he working on this in in the, you know, the house absolute and trying to figure stuff out? Uh, or is there a religious phenomena that might have occurred in the green man's time that to make it happen? Right. Like, is there a relationship between the, the faith based practices of these people and the science fiction that we know is happening and churning around here, right? Mm-hmm. And exactly what you just said, right? She she cleaves the knot there, right? Well, it's both at one time, right? Mm-hmm. Like even if the Pellerine, uh, you know, the Pellerine Cathedral, I'm sorry, the Cathedral of the Claw, even if the Cathedral flies, it only flies because the Pan Creator set up the the Divine Watch ten billion years ago right. in order to make that happen, right. right? You know, it's a, it's a useful thing to think about here for the thing, like. The new sun comes because it's prophesized, but presumably there's also some other stuff going on because, again, in the future, they have injected chlorophyll into their bodies <laughs> to make them not have to eat anymore. Right. Well, uh, and this is like uh, it, the green man, not knowingly, right, it, uh, is couching this in terms that are like sort of biblical, right? Edenic. What he says is um, yeah. we have altered it until it can live in our blood and by its intervention have at last made our peace in humankind's long struggle with the sun. In us, the tiny plants live and die, and our bodies feed from them, and they're dead and require no other nourishment. All the famines and all the labor of growing food are ended. And, you know, the labor of working the earth and having to grow your own food and everything, that's one of the punishments inflicted on Adam uh, when Adam and Eve are expelled from Eden. And so, like, the, the religious tenor here, right, is that humankind again humankind changes right there's something at play there humankind in the future may not look like humankind now uh resolves an inherent contradiction between itself and its environment which is the necessity of cultivating food right Mm -hmm. Right. and the green man doesn't seem to know about the coming of the new sun right like he doesn't seem to know what what severian's talking about with his faith yeah yeah so yeah severian says uh after all this, he's he's thrilled, right? He says, uh, then the new sun comes as prophesied, I said, and there is indeed a second life for Earth if what you say is the truth. The green man threw back his head and laughed. Much later, I was to hear the sound the Alzabo makes as it ranges the snow-swept tablelands of the high country. Its laughter is horrible, but the green man's was more terrible, and I drew away from him. You were not a human being, I said. Not now, if you ever were. And then the green man is like, huh, to think I had hope in you. Right? Basically, like, I hoped you were going to help me out here. Um, but that... That's a weird turn for that to take. Severian goes from really into it to being scared of this guy because he laughs at the idea of the new sun. Yep. And then he asks him for some actual prophecy. And uh, and the green man starts just like making shit up, which is really funny to me. Yeah. Because like everyone's yeah. coming to him for prophecy all yeah. the time. So he's like, yeah, if you have sons, you'll get cursed, blah, blah, blah. And Severian's <laughs> like, hey, quit giving me that garbage prophecy. Mm-hmm. Give me the real shit. Uh, and the green man, this is really cool. And it's very wolfy. And to me where the green man's like, look, I don't really know that much about the future in the time between our times, you know, and, and I'm from so far in the future. It's not really going to be helpful for you. Uh, 
but but because he passed, he says he passed through all that time. Mm-hmm. You know, from mm-hmm. from his he, that he has a glimmer of the things that might occur, and and the prophecy he gives, Severian is a is a above ground. I forget what the question he asks him is. Where is just says above ground? Isn't it? Isn't it? Where is Agia? He's like, yes. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So maybe so. Mm-hmm. Above ground. Yeah, he says, "Where will I find true. her?" Which is true. Ah, it's true. It is above ground. Yep. Yep. It's, uh. Uh. Well, and know, then he a, says, "Listen." Uh, also, our men are coming to try to free Barnock. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Because he thinks the above ground thing. Severian takes it as a fraud thing because it's the uh, having read a lot about, you know, like prophesying and stuff historically, the stuff that he starts. And if you have sons, you'll be cursed, blah, 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 blah. This is, you know, medieval cold reading, saying stuff that's right, so general, right. but like is going to key into some anxiety that a person is very, very likely going to have. And they're like, oh, my God, if I have sons, they're, they'll they'll turn on me. Uh, so Severian tells him to shut that down. And then he does the above ground thing, that very Vatic, like vague and weird thing. Severian says again, so you're a fraud. And he's like, no, listen, you want to know something specific and real? Like there are armed men coming for Barnock. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then he. Uh, and to be clear, he, what he, he says outright, that's not a prophecy. That's <laughs> I learned that based on what other people have asked me. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Uh, so then Severian gives him a whetstone so he can uh, break himself free at some later point. Well, well, you know, that's actually really confusing to me I, mm-hmm. while reading it. He breaks the whetstone and gives it to him. And I mean, I know a little bit about a whetstone. You know what I mean? I know how to sharpen my own axe. I know how to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Using a whetstone to cut through a chain is. That's a, I don't know if that's yeah. possible, like physically. Maybe over a long enough period of time. I really, we're in Shawshank Redemption territory. He does, is what I'm he does you, give yeah. him a timeline because earlier in this conversation, he says, you're going to leave and in a few months, I'll be dead. So he, yeah. he, he is yeah. working on the timeline of a few months, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's maybe that's what it is. Keep this thing hidden. Slowly break yourself out. Yeah. You know, my my understanding sun. is that he was using it as a file, like long term. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. But like that would wear a wet i don't know i don't know how much gene wolf knows about a whetstone in any case it's cool it's a cool thing the green man is so thrilled well cameron you have to understand gene wolf sorry gw who's translating this book <laughs> you're right chose you're right. the word whetstone but we don't know you're, what it actually 100%. is <laughs> right 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 hey you ever uh give someone a tool to break themselves out of uh <laughs> out of prison with that you literally break on the thing they're trying to use mm-hmm. you know you ever give someone a file uh half a file that you have that you broke on the prison bar for them <laughs> uh-huh. you ever do that by any chance i have not not personally you know what i mean it's just mm-hmm. like i feel like the very method through which he gives it to the green man disproves its capability it's, to it's work possible i thought you were going somewhere else which was i thought you were going to say i thought you were drawing a line between giving the green man a tool to escape and gene wolf giving himself a tool to work <laughs> his way out of any sort of narrative dead end by inventing mm-hmm. gw the translator who actually chose these words and there's actually a different word behind mm-hmm. each one yeah i was doing that that yeah. was me okay mm-hmm. uh I also hope that throughout the rest of the story, uh, nearly every person that Severian meets, he just breaks the whetstone again until the end. He's like down to one sixteenth. He's like breaking it with his thumbs. You know, yes. like doing, that'd be fun. Crushes it up to powder. Everyone gets a little bit. Uh, he gets the note. He talks to Jonas, goes mm-hmm. back, hangs out with Jonas a little bit. 
gets the note uh-huh. from supposedly Thecla, and it goes on for like two full it's pages. so long. Just running through, and the gist of it is she escaped with the help of Father Aniri. She faked her death and escaped the tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really the gist of it, right? Yeah, well, importantly, um, there's stuff in here that's like, when you thought me in agony, I was to ask you for a means of terminating my wretched life. All went as planned. You provided the knife, and I made a shallow cut on my arm, crouched near the door so some of the blood would run beneath it, then smeared my throat and fell across the bed for you to see when you looked in my prison. And uh, I, the the thing that I, uh, I, I, highlight, I actually highlighted that later. I came back to that later when in confrontation with Agia, Severian says, well, you got some of the details wrong, but in the moment, I was really excited about the idea that the Thecla was alive. Because um, he doesn't go over which details he got uh, she got wrong in this letter. Uh, yeah. But perhaps that was one of them who could say. Mm-hmm. But And that's also a very funny thing, too, which is that she knows... Th- I mean, this is blow by blow, what, all kind yes. of factual information, right? Yes. Which means he told her all of this in extreme detail. Yes. <laughs> He's narrating everything he thinks about out loud. And what He's he thinks about around, is He's wandering around like buying clothes, thinking about Thecla mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Like just telling everybody about it. It's wild. Mm-hmm. And then I love that the, the letter ends because this is like, you know, the thing that really jumps out. Or I remember it jumping out to me the first time I read it where she goes over all this. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Romance, whatever. And then we get to this final paragraph where she's like, by the way, the place where I'm hiding out, that is the Autark's treasure house. And there's lots of cool shit here. <laughs> um, it's so funny. Uh, and then, of course, like later, it turns out like Ajia's like, yeah, I didn't actually, you know, I, I threw that in kind of to sweeten the deal. <laughs> Good for her. You yeah. know, you know, why trust that Severian hasn't moved on to someone else? He's a kid, you know? Yeah. He goes, he steals a horse, he zoots his way all the way to it, he gets to the mine, he goes down deep into the mine. This happens so fast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, uh, two pages or so, it's it's immediate, he finishes the letter and then he's like, alright, we're, we're going, we're going, I'm going right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jonas is like, hey, uh, what's up? Nope, he's gone. Gone. Yep. Is he going to bring a torch or some uh, lantern? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> he starts walking down in this cave. Yeah. It's pitch black. Yeah. It's nighttime. He starts y- yelling Thecla and it's just echoing oh everywhere. God. Mm-hmm. Our naive little goofball keeps going. Astonished that there's no reference to the uh, you know, the tunnels beneath the mannequin tower, by the way, mm-hmm. beneath the citadel. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. and yet we are. Um, and he's zooting, and I actually really love this because it's so dark, right? It's, it's, it's so dark that you don't have depth perception, right? Obviously there's no light. And so he starts seeing all these little like things moving around. He thinks they're lighting He thinks they're torches. Yeah. He's like, what is that? And he thinks they're close. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh, they're on the, they're little small things right on the walls in front of me. Mm-hmm. And then slowly but surely he realizes he's in a massive cavern, like a huge, unbelievable, the inside of a holiday. He's in Moria, right? He's yeah. in mm-hmm. Peter mm-hmm. Jackson's vision of Moria, these massive, huge places. And these little bitty dots running around are like person sized creatures scrambling toward him, screaming in unison with one another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
who are in fact uh, irregularly shaped man apes who have a sort mm-hmm. of phosphorescent glow. Mm-hmm. In They're able to do fur. like weird percentile calculations. They're so irregular, right? right? Yeah, there is, there is like I mean, he describes them as being the the sort of stars that have five unequal points, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, which again to me feels a little bit like you could imagine you take the science fictional a- angle here, and it's like, oh, these people have been genetically mutated to be better miners, right? They don't mm-hmm. need to carry lights. Their fur glows. They have one big swinging arm and then a smaller arm to support the, the motion, but not, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Like, it's easy to draw your way towards not just um, strange evolutionary change over time, but, like, specific genetically you know, a, a eugenics program built to to create these animal people for this purpose, you know? Um, and they're coming at you <laughs> from yeah. every direction. Yeah. Their job's done. They stacked up all the ore. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Someone needs to, like, you know, uh, uh, control select and give them a new job. <laughs> Well, they did. They're worker units, and you had 300 of them, and someone clicked on Severian. And was like, I'll probably lose some, but I got 300 of these guys. <laughs> I know Severian's a hero unit, but come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boss. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and they went right for it. But the uh, but yeah, and they go for him, and he just starts action movie in their ass. Mm-hmm. Just chopping him up. He's doing, like doing standing in this like subterranean river, like whipping yeah. around Terminus Est. Doing three sixty. Yeah, what do you think attacks? about this uh, cavern? The little glimpses he gets of the cavern down here. It's cool. Like again, it is. It is. You get a little bit. Uh, once he takes out the the claw, you get a, a better vision of it. And it's like in my mind, it is a underground mining facility that has like structures built. It's so big that there are structures inside of the cavern, right? Like there mm-hmm. is a storehouse freestanding, this is in my mind, built in the cavern. And then like a street and across the street, there's another building. And in my mind, there's like fencing and like barbed wire. I don't know why. And barrels, like like video game red uh-huh. barrels. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it feels almost like a military base in my mind. Um, or, or like just a protected mining operation. I don't know if that's grounded in the text or if that's me reaching, but it's one or the other and it's real. Well, it's another (laughs) like wonderful ambiguity where, uh, Severian also eventually calls it like a buried city. Uh, and Jonas picks this up later as well. Uh, there's, um, there's this implication here. Like everyone in Saltus is like, oh yeah, it's a mining town where miners, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but like mining for them may not be, oh, we found a vein of, uh, you know, I don't know, iron ore or something. And now we're going to mine that out. No, mining might be equivalent to scavenging that there are these Mm -hmm. like relics of lost civilizations deep underground. And part of what you do when you mine is you uncover this stuff and then you search for like what you can scavenge from that. Yeah, because he says the people from Saltus, some of them make their living doing that. Yes. Um, like even here in this specific mm-hmm. section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then yeah, he, he it, describes the like irregular pillars of of stacked silver ingots, and there are hundreds of stacks in the cities, in the uh, the buried city rather. Yeah, gray stone buildings. That's good. It's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. all here. Ancient construction. 
Um, so he whips out the claw of the conciliator, and all of these creatures like begin to worship it. They like get down and start praying, and they mm-hmm. desire it. And their faces look more human, right? Mm-hmm. You know, think about the kind of healing capabilities of the claw. It does something, presumably here, and maybe this is just Severian's perception, but. You know, we know the claw has all these properties, and one of them might be that, you know, the further you are from the quote unquote nature of the claw, right? The the further you the more you get kind of dragged back to it. It's beneficial to you. I mean, I, I do think that there's a really strong um the further you are from what humanity might be in its best form the more fallen you are. I mean, that's explicitly what Severian's saying, but that's also in the Jonas stuff, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. You've changed, you know, mm-hmm. you're we, people are not what they could be or should be. <laughs> Jonas just looks at earth. He's like, you changed, man. <laughs> we used to be so tight. <laughs> uh, the, another thing that happens here too is, so he does that. They kind of leave him alone a little bit and he starts just deciding to leave to kind of figure out, to backtrack the way he came and he starts hearing this like boom, 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 like massive, like, I don't know, like drums in the deep or something Uh like that. I forget who said that, but, Uh um, you know, it's just like a thing that people say. And, uh, but he says that and he says from far below, I heard a step that might have been the walking of a tower on the final day when it is said, all the cities of earth will stride forth to meet the dawn of the new sun. Those cities are walking. Right. Mm-hmm. But to me, I do. there's another way of reading that, right? That's not walking cities. The city shall be overturned. <laughs> overturned, perhaps, right? <laughs> but also uh, that the, the cities... What What if cities aren't cities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like, if you remember uh, the... Uh, not Thea, but the Valyria, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We built we built all these towers here waiting for the Autark uh-huh. to go. Mm-hmm. And uh the Autark never went. The Autark never left Earth. So here we are, right? So the waiting of the new sun, where the towers go, right? Well, we know about one tower that's just a rocket ship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that too a lot. That there's this kind of if you can make the leap between the walking of a tower and the cities are meant to go to the the new sun when the new sun appears, then you know, it's the, perhaps the launching of the rocket. I like that a lot. That's the thing that I really keyed into the first time I read the book. I was like, wait a, hold on. Yeah. Wait a minute here. <laughs> and again, it's so Gene Wolfe to be buried here at the end of this paragraph about eight men or whatever. Totally. Well, like, and is, and that is explicitly also like the ball rock is here, right? Like uh-huh. they're, they're calling mm-hmm. that up. My note here was, uh, is this a ball rock? Is this a living city? Is this a walking tower? Is this a Gundam? Maybe there's a Gundam mm-hmm. waking up down there. That's what yeah, it sounds like. I wish like. there were a Gundam. I'm, I'm holding out my hopes. I haven't finished these books. Maybe there's a Gundam in it by the end. <laughs> it's like, Jonas, what was that thing I heard in the mines? He's like, I need to tell you of Amaro Ray. <laughs> exactly. 100%. <laughs> um, I mean, there was a, a point when I was reading this. I mean, he has that line in, in the chapter right before the – on the way there where he's like the river or like the 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 – there's like a trickle of water coming out of the, the – uh, the cave entrance, mm-hmm. like yeah. like water, you know, or saliva dripping from the mouth of a titan. Um, and there was, you know, I, I had to, when I was reading, I was like, isn't a body going to come swallow the cities? Is this a fallen titan of the type? Is this why he asks Jonas, hey, do you think, hey, is, 
is this in a bias situation? Do you think the thing that was walking is in a bias situation? Was I in a giant thing that ate this city already? And he doesn't say that word for word, and I don't think that's what's yeah. happening here. But it, it it's fun to think about that sort of scale happening. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Even though Jonas well, they're, says they're, they're not going to get up and come to the land and hit things with their big mountain hands. We, we will get more of this later, and I don't think this is like uh, projecting too far forward. There, there are readings of these books that assert that every mountain that we see is like a Mount Rushmore. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And like that, that'll happen later and we'll, we'll learn more about that or whatever. But there, there are people who do read these books that way. And so uh, because it's such a far future and because this is just like part of, of what this, these people seem to do um, at one point in the books. And so that's not, that is, that is closer to the text in this moment than you might even think. <laughs> right, right. Sure. I'm also trying to think of the, the how Severian would write seeing a Gundam, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like before Some me, sort of white stood doll. A, <laughs> that's actually what Hathor that's was what talking Hathor about. Was, yeah, yeah. Hathor <laughs> he had a Gundam. He had a Gundam. We thought it was it. like a sex doll thing, but it's not it. He had a Gundam that he just loved to hang out with. <laughs> I built it a beautiful little box, but it never had to go there because it slept oh. in my bed with me. <laughs> oh. uh, but yeah, so he. he but even people had, in this world don't always talk about things the same way, right? Because right. He they he gets past all the, the man apes. He gets back outside. We'll come back around to this Master Galos thing about cowardice. I think we have to. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. We have to. But eventually, it turns out that uh, what had happened was Agia had a bunch of, like, mercenaries with her uh, and had was trying to lure him into a trap. Wanted to kill him on the way in. The mercenaries were like, no, just let the man apes do it. He's not going to get through this thing. She's like, I'm pretty sure he's got to. Let's go on the other side and get ready to get him. They, it's like they, watching, a, it's like two undead sitting at the top of uh, Blight Town watching yes. you take that elevator down yes. and be like, we don't have to. We, we don't, don't have to do interfere with this. And he shows up. He gets through. Exactly. And uh, they end up trying to like snipe him. They can't because of the Fulgen cloak. And there's a fight again. He kicks their asses again and ends up with his with his boot on Agia's neck. Um, and the man ape helps, right? Yeah. Yeah. The mm-hmm. man ape shows up. The man ape missing the arm or the hand shows up to help. Yeah. King. Uh, but yeah. my point being, Agia eventually is like, um, there are four and we would have had you, but the bodies of those things, those firefly tiger men started pitching out the hole. And it's like, yeah, in Agia's narrative, she's described all of this not as man apes, but firefly tiger men, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and Jonas um, is like, uh, I thought I saw that you were holding a cup of burning brandy or maybe incense. Yeah, um, yeah. J- Jonas shows up and yells down. He's like, "Hey, is there a fight going on <laughs> over here? Is there some action?" And like, Severian's already won the thing or yes. whatever, right? But yeah. but yeah, uh, and Jonas is like, "Hey, I yeah, I saw you holding brandy or incense, burning incense." And I immediately like when I was reading this uh, yesterday, I like sent a message. I was like, "Michael, what is this?" But and it sounds like you don't have like a, a linear answer. Yeah, I I mean, apart from just kind of the general religious imagery of the idea of a burning chalice. Uh, and then I also sent a video mm-hmm. into into the chat where it's like also like burning brandy looks really cool. And it's very neat to think of uh, like the light of the claw looking like this because it's it, it's fire, right? It looks like fire, but it's also kind of um, like a very dark fire and a fire that mm-hmm. seems to 
not really have a base. It just sort of like flares up and it's very uh, uh, like diaphanous. It's it's neat looking, you know, look up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's taken over TikTok right now. Uh, <laughs> burning brandy chalices. Let's let's make it happen. And and the reason that Jonas makes that remark is that Severian, the the man ape with the severed hand reaches out and Severian brings the claw up to it, maybe like to heal him or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know what happens there. The well, man ape runs away. Severian makes the and he's uh, what does he say? Um, beseeching sound because the, the man ape is like making noises, right? He's like trying yeah. to communicate uh, blood still seeped from the stump, though his kind must possess a mechanism for pinching shut the veins as thylacidons are said to do without the attention of a surgeon. A man would have bled to death from that wound. So, you know, yeah, another kind of ambiguity does is Severian correct here or is like, in fact, is is the guy being healed uh, by the presence of the claw? Right. Right. What uh, what a bravery. That's the thing that really strikes me about this, like the the bravery of the man ape who is wounded and yet follows anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, like like an apostle. Yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. Can you imagine going back and be like, I went outside. I went outside and he healed my he hand healed and now me. I'm back. Yeah. I'm Manate Pope now. <laughs> yeah. Deal That's with the it. play. That is the play. Every time. Anytime you can get poped, you want to do that. <laughs> you want to get poked. That's how I play Crusader Kings. You can't actually be the yeah. Pope of Crusader Kings, but you could have uh, like a family member become the Pope. Yeah. Um, you get brother do pope. you know about Snapdragon, the parlor game from the 16th century? No. It was played during the winter, particularly on Christmas Eve. Brandy was heated and placed in a wide, shallow bowl. Raisins were placed in the brandy, which was then set alight. Typically, lights were extinguished or dimmed to increase the eerie effect of the blue flames playing across the liquor. The game is described in Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language as, quote, a play in which they catch raisins out of burning brandy and extinguish them by closing the mouth, eat them. According to an article in Richard Steele's Tatler magazine, quote, the wantonness of the thing was to see the other look like a demon as we burnt ourselves and snatched out the fruit. That's fun. Yeah. Neat. Love to to catch burning brandy raisins in my mouth that burn my mouth look like a demon. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. this is better than ninety nine percent of video of games. games. <laughs> yeah, immediately, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> no question. It's like, oh, can you uh, can you like openly gamble with loot boxes every day or burn your mouth with raisins <laughs> with alcohol soaked raisins? Uh-huh. I know which one I'm choosing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Every day, call me Mister Firemouth. Call me Dr. There, Demon, was a, okay? there was a chant, according to Robert Chambers' Book of Days, here he comes with flaming bowl, don't he mean to take his toll, snip, snap, dragon, and so on. You can look it up. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, it was called Book of Days? The Book of, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, Book of Days, uh-huh. Do you yeah, know bro. who else has a Book of Days? No, tell me. Gene Wolfe. Mm-hmm. Oh, word? Word. Word. Got my first edition over here on the shelf somewhere. Uh, yeah, the uh, the so the thing we'll end up talking about probably toward the end of this. There's really not a lot of value in it uh, right now. Toward the end of, of Book of the New Sun is that um, we've talked about it already before that Gene Wolfe created kind of a nonfiction volume that is a companion to um, Book of the New Sun called Castle of the Otter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a small press thing. So when it was eventually reprinted for wider distribution, ah. or at least the volume you can get it in now, it's called Castle of Days and is combined with, I believe, uh, Book of Days is a short story collection, right? Michael? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're slapped together and it's called Castle of Days. And so 
If you want to like really spoil yourself on a bunch of stuff and like Gene Wolfe's opinions about some plot things, you can always read Castle of Days and check out Castle of the Otter. Now, don't bring it up to us, but but some of that stuff will show up on the show eventually. Mm-hmm. Just not. There's no reason to do it now. But uh, yeah, so it all loops back together. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Jonas shows up. He has this weird thing where he he saw the scene that we just had described, but seems to have perceived it in some very strange ways, right? He he calls mm-hmm. the man ape. He, I think he says a, a a being in a furred robe making obeisance to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the flaming brandy thing. Then also, uh, you know, incense, which I think is it, it, that's interesting, right? Flaming brandy. Okay, and then incense, which would not, to my mind, look like burning brandy in the slightest it's yeah, a very yeah. different thing uh but he saw things play out he's got some kind of uh, a slightly different way of processing all of the things he just saw uh then there's agia and severian has the ability to kill her like you know the opportunity uh and he does not and it can like that is tied off in a way that uh specifically works back to how this chapter begins with the story of Master Gurlow. So maybe now's when we want to talk about that. Sure. So what's a coward? How? What's the line that Severian draws between a coward and a mm-hmm. brave person? A, a reminder from the summary, uh, in case you've forgotten over the intervening two hours, the uh, the story he tells is that Master Gurlos, that part of what the torturers have to do is sometimes they have to rape their clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Master Gurlos is kind of maybe drunk um, and is yeah. is bragging to young Severian. He's, Severian's flashing back to this memory of Master Gurlos, bragging to him that in order to to perform this task, he uh, he could use a powder to do it, mm-hmm. you know, to to like uh, yeah. get an erection, all this stuff. But he doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. And and he runs through all of this. And he also says, and even even if none of this works, he has this kind of torture dildo thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, I've got this, you know, at the end. And because the letter of the law, the letter of the order is not rape, actually. I, you know, I'm shortcutting here. Mm-hmm. It's not that. It's abuse. Mm-hmm. And so as law and abuse is obviously sexual in nature. So as long as that occurs, it doesn't matter how it happens. That's their he literally calls it their out. Right. Their their ability to interpret. Right. The what the word means gives them latitude to do whatever they desire. And so they do it sometimes uh, to their capability or their desire or their want. And other times they don't. And it's the torturers out to interpret words in ways that are beneficial to them mm-hmm. um, or or out. But there's no dodging the fact of that. This is the way that this is being communicated to us. Right. And um, out that still maintains sick. the sexual assault. Uh, right. But but the out is like about protecting one's you know, sense of masculinity or something. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that coward is caught up in all of this. Or, yeah. You know, the, the, he calls master Gurlos a coward for the way he is expressing all of these things. Well, right. and for the doubt in the slow time ahead of the moment, because he says there was another time when uh, the talk, the, the clock was ticking and Gurlos just had to do it and he did it. No problem. But it, but the coward, yeah, because the, the abs- client was going to die, right? Mm-hmm. And and the letter of the law is that abuse had to be done, right? Like right. we're getting two sides of torturing here. Explicitly is about interpretation and latitude. What's the word mean? 
how do we accomplish the word? But on the other end, everything on the order has to be accomplished, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so it doesn't matter how you interpret it as long as you get there. And, you know, he's giving us both of the things. But, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That Gerlos can, uh, if if necessary, can do the thing as well. But but that the, the coward obsesses ahead of time and doubts with with in the clear light of day when asked to do something difficult, which, again, we, you know, you understand, I hope, listening, what our position would be on this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh Gorlos is a coward because when he sees the task in front of him, he's squeamish about it. Um, or when he when he knows the task is upcoming, he's squeamish about it. Even though in the moment he would do it in a second if if the clock was ticking. And and Severian positions himself against this and says, Master Gorlos was a coward then. Still, perhaps his cowardice is better than the courage I would have possessed in his position for courage is not always a, a virtue. Um, uh, and, he's, and he's kind of talking through this, thinking through this, um, uh, in relation to his own situation here, and mm-hmm. well, he'd uh, already well, raised on, it, right? Before we move yes, on, please. That, that sentence means, right, if we, like, walk it back two paragraphs, mm-hmm. that sentence means that yes. Severian, in that time, in that moment, would have no compunction uh, or problem with raping a client, if mm-hmm. necessary. A hundred percent. And would have been glad to do it. Would have been glad to do it, would have not feared his positionality in it ahead of time, you know, wouldn't have fretted about it for days the way that Gerlos right. was. Right. Mm-hmm. Whether that fretting is about uh, squeamishness at the act or about fear of his own impotency or something else, right? Right. Uh, there's no – young Severian in this moment would not have felt bad about this in any way. Right. And he, older Severian, is saying this might not have been a good thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, I had been courageous, he says, uh, when I had fought the man apes. Courage is not always a virtue. So he is here he, like this is all like runway for him to frame uh, and in some way, maybe, you know, like explain away what to the reader is such an obviously bad decision of running into this cave to to meet Thecla right. uh, and. Uh, he's like conflating it or kind of like trying to tie it to this idea of a youthful courage that is also a, uh, a, a uncaring foolhardiness or something like that. Well, and then this gets put into conversation in a quiet way almost immediately right after this with what Jonas says about him sparing Thecla, right? So, or not Thecla, who? Uh, Agia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at the end of this encounter, Agia uh, says, you know what, you know what, if you're going to do it, I don't want to see it coming. Look, I turn my back to you. Uh, and so she she turns her back to him. He says that a weight has been lifted from his heart in this moment, that he had not been certain he could strike her if he had to look into her face. I raised my own iron phallus, and, I di- and as I did, as I did so, I felt there was one more thing I wanted to ask Agia, but I could not recall what it might be. Strike, she said, I am ready. I sought good footing. And my fingers found the woman's head at one end of the guard. The, the, the woman's head is in the woman's head on Terminus Ast, not Agia's head. Uh, mm-hmm. The head that marked the female edge. And a little later, again, strike. But by that time, I had climbed out of the veil. So he doesn't kill her, right? After mm-hmm. all this talk about yeah. not being a coward in this other way. And whether this is cowardice or not, we can unpack that. But he then immediately in the next chapter, the next page, is Jonas being like, he's like, I didn't kill her. And Jonas like, yeah, I heard her yelling while you were like right next to me. So I figured you didn't kill her, dude. Why didn't you kill her? Did you get her to promise not to come after you again? And he's like, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. 
Uh, he's like, I would have killed her. And Severian's like, yeah, that would have been the right thing to do. And Jonas is like, I don't think it would have been right. I'm only saying I would have done it. I would have imagined myself being stabbed in my sleep, dying on a dirty bed somewhere, and I would have swung that thing. It wouldn't have been right. Uh, it wouldn't have been right, right? And like, I think immediately we move into this different realm of morality than this incredibly like delicate construction that Severian has of all of these loops and, you know, what is cowardice? What is, and, and Jonas, a guy who lives in the world, a sailor who has to move, move around in the world is like, yeah, I don't know, man, I would have killed her, but I'm not going to tell myself that it would have been the right thing to do. Don't get me, right. don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. And I think that's an extremely good. And then of course, Formally, Jonas is then immediately rewarded because the mace he picked up has been turned into gold, which, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, there is a parabolic thing happening here, right? Or not a parabolic, but a para- like a parable-esque thing happening that Jonas mm-hmm. has said truth and has been immediately rewarded by the miracle of the lead turning into gold, which we talked about already, right? Right. And I do think that the the Gurlos, I the Gurlos thing is is doing a lot of work here, right? One is that the, that, that sexual violence is part of the job mm-hmm. and is normal Yep. for Severian growing up and for the tortures and all that, like that, that surface level, that's what's going on there. Right. And then the second piece that's going on there is that Severian in that moment feels complicated about it, but we also know everything we know about his respect for the torturers guild, right? Like, he he is a torturer. He thinks that the world, everyone is a torturer to the thing they love, right? He has set up a very clear schematic of the things he has learned about the conduct in the world really emanating from that place. And I th- that entire scenario, you know, is disgusting to read. It's it's horrible to read, but leads into these two points of being like, okay, well, this is Severian's worldview almost entirely. And then we get this conversation with Jonas where Jonas is like, what are you talking about, man? Like, no, this would be bad, but it would be pragmatic. And Severian doesn't really seem to have a notion of being pragmatic, mm-hmm. right? Like he really seems to be like, are you doing the thing that you were expected to do because that is your purpose in the world? Or are you doing something that is weak and cowardly within that? You know, that that that's his his two mechanisms for understanding the world. Did you did you fulfill the obligation or did you fail to do so? And Jonas says, well, actually, there's a third way out. It's called feeling bad. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's called knowing you did a, a bad thing, which maybe should make us think about uh, the death of Thecla. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, you know, that is a kind of third way that Severian took out of a scenario uh, that he definitely should not have. Right. Um, and we might assume that he thinks of himself as a coward around that stuff, right? He certainly turns himself in. He says, look, kill me now, whatever. Um, but maybe we should have a more complicated opinion about it. Mm-hmm. That's just – and not just what we have talked about previously, right? You know, the thing that that I was pretty outspoken about in that episode. It's not just a question of mercy, right? There, there's a more complicated system of obligation here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ultimately, I mean, think about it this way too, right? Like his first girlfriend – he killed her, mm-hmm. right? Like whether that was out of mercy or whatever, right? She is dead because Severian made that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his his second woman he fell in love with, right? Girlfriend two is not dead mm-hmm. uh, because he didn't think it was expedient or right or he thought it was cowardly or something like that. 
Yeah. Um, he doesn't tell you, us you know, why, right? He doesn't. He doesn't tell us why. He, he, yeah. he, he completely omits what happens between him lifting the blade or feeling the, the face of the woman on the terminus desk and, and then climbing out, right? Yeah. So, oh, and we're also being reminded here, right, that Terminus Est has two blades, yeah. uh, what he calls a male and a female blade, and they are matched to uh, two heads. Or has two right? edges, on, on, right? There's yeah. the two, two edges, right, two edges, yeah. not yeah. blades. Yeah, 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 yeah two yeah. edges. Uh, just, just a thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, and this came up earlier during the uh, the executions because he was saying like, sure was good that there was one side for uh, Morwenna and another one for Barnock. It meant I didn't have to like. You know, re- he was complaining he that didn't have the to wood, clean <laughs> right? Yes, he was complaining that the wood of the scaffolding is going to fuck up his sword. But good news, I can just <laughs> flip it around. I don't have to worry about re really repairing the blade of my sword in between each each execution. Yeah, do you have the rhyme by any chance? Oh God, I don't have the rhyme. You know what I'm talking about? I. Uh, no, I mean, there's that song we didn't talk about. I don't remember the rhyme. There is a song. No, there's a there's a rhyme where he's talking about like what the torturers talk about when uh, like village people oh. sit, set up a set up a uh, yeah. uh, a scaffold, uh-huh. right? It, it's like something something convex is a yeah. or concave to boot or yeah. something. Yes. There's a fun little rhyme. God, we also didn't. We don't. We don't have time. But shout outs to uh, getting this monk or this priest uh, talking about the increate and stuff ahead of this execution. Always fun to learn more about what people believe in this world. Oh, yeah. No, that cool that cool throwaway line about what does he call it? Like the worm at the heart of the sun or something? Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, dude. He sure you the hero who will destroy the black worm that devours the sun. You for whom the sky parts as a curtain. You whose breath shall wither vast Erebus, Abaya, and Scylla who wallow beneath the wave. You yeah. that equally live in the shell of the smallest seed in the for- farthest forest, the seed that hath rolled into the dark where no man sees. <laughs> yeah, that's rad. There's like, uh oh. Uh huh. creating his little shell again. Right. He's a little acorn. He loves an acorn. Yeah. Uh, I, I found it. Uh, wide as a stool, dense as a fool, and dished as a rule. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everything wrong about a like a a, a, a block to cut someone's head off on. Mm-hmm. Right. That mm-hmm. Too big, too dense, so it dulls your blade, and it's dished, so it like doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it it like means you can't get an even cut. Um, I love it. Because right. he says, blessedly, it's convex, so it actually allows you to chop into it as opposed to not cutting all the way through it. Very good. It's extremely good. Uh, uh, there's another There's another place where the phallus comes up, right? Well, he, he describes his own sword as the iron phallus. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. When he's thinking, yes. When, he's when she said to- that, I felt as though a weight had been lifted from my heart. I had not been certain I could strike her if I had to look into her, fur- her face. I raised my own iron phallus, and as I did so, felt there was one more thing I wanted to ask Agia, but I could not recall what it might be. Right. And so, like, yeah. What was going on for- between you and your brother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so those, hey, uh, did- those ropes that were on the side of his head, they didn't yeah. go away. What was going on? Yeah, he had a mask and he took it off, but I could still see the things where they were. What was that thing you drew in the, on the sand when you cursed me? Yeah, I kind of a I gave lot you of that questions. money. What'd you do with that money? <laughs> you hire those guys? Is that what you spent the money? Is that what that was? Yeah, did I hire? Did I give you the money to hire these dudes to kill me? <laughs> um, but no, yeah. So I mean, he's explicit because the the reason I'm bringing that up is the Iron Phallus is 
the thing that marks Master Gurlos a coward, right? Mm-hmm. That he would take the out. Right. You know, right. we, we have the capability to interpret it our own way, which means that I don't have to be bodily involved in this thing. Mm-hmm. I, I can do it some other method. It's our out. It's our dodge for having to actually look in the face the horrifying thing that we are doing as part of our job. I will do an additional horrifying thing that does not implicate me as much. And that's how Severian sees the opportunity to kill Agia here. It's yeah. a way of dodging an obligation or taking an out, literally. And listen, I think it's fascinating that Jonas says to this guy, I don't think it would have been right if you'd killed her. Okay, why not? She just tried to assassinate him, led him into a cave of man-apes, had previously misled him uh, and uh, into a situation where she, was, she and her brother were trying to kill him for his cool sword and the claw of the conciliator. That Austin, was not- if I went around every day killing everyone who led me into a cave okay. of firefly tiger men, <laughs> I'd be killing dudes all day long. You would. It's true. But I mean, I think that it says something about Jonas here in some way, right? Yes. Which is like, yeah. Jonas is like, no, listen, it's not good to kill people, <laughs> like fundamentally. Yeah. Um, right. Or, hey, we live in a world so messed up that what she does, that's just par for the course. You don't kill somebody over that. It's one or the other. I think it's probably the former. And, and that is just not conceivable. Again, Severian does not engage with, with, I don't think it would have been right. I'm only saying I would have done it in any way. Right. He's too busy asking questions. Yep. Uh-huh. He's got too many questions then he asks for the this questions. outlander. Yeah, then they go to bed. Then they go to bed. Well, jumped. they don't go to bed. They, they He goes to sell something. You're right. Mm-hmm. He goes to sell And then Severian the, goes to bed. You're right. No, no, and no. They that happens the next morning. They, right? They go, to, they, go to, they go to bed, and then the next morning, he get, he uh, um, Jonas goes out to sell his gold. Severian's chilling out, thinking his thoughts, having intense sense memory in the room. Mm-hmm. And then Jonas almost immediately comes back because he's been taken hostage by these fellas. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The cultellari. Talk about a cool word. <laughs> Yeah, but they get worked, so I don't know. Are they really yeah. that cool? I didn't say they were cool guys. I just uh, said they had a cool, cool name. You're right. Yeah. I think we should. When I'm Altark, I will reserve all cool names for cool guys. <laughs> I mean, this is the folly of the, art, the Altark, right? Whose who's urine is a golden shower. Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Jolenta said that, the, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm reading from the book right now. Yeah. That's not, I, didn't, I, would, I wouldn't make that up. <laughs> The uh, but yeah, so they uh, they do that. I loved so we read through chapter nine, and we can talk about this, you know, little like uh, badass anime scenario that happens here because it truly is. But uh, chapter nine is called the Liege of Leaves. Banger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Vodalus at this point is kind of like like an anti pope a little bit, yeah. right? Like he's leading dudes, yeah, mm-hmm. and he has a throne room, and it's like in the woods, right. and. Are these woods? All right. So, you know, there's a way of reading this that's like, oh, this is like medieval Europe, blah, 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 bullshit. Right. Mm-hmm. But given that we are making the assumption that this is happening in something like our South America. Right. You know, we've already gotten something. We have mate mm-hmm. in this thing. We also have the hot chocolate with pepper in it. Yeah, right. Yeah. The kind of Central American dealio there. Um, this might be the rainforest. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I was imagining. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Not a it's European cool. forest at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And again, I just need to read this section of the very beginning of this chapter of mm-hmm. them up on the elephant thing, the Balakaither, I think is how I'm going to say that. Um, 
Uh, they is talk, it the beginning of chapter nine? Towards the second paragraph of chapter nine. Uh, what I'd written on the false Aaron of Agia's letter, I'd gallop past um, more of these these hills of the, the debris composed largely of broken stone and brick. Though my route had lain chiefly through the forest at its nearest approach to the village, now we went among the heaps of tailings where there was no path. Here, in addition to much rubble, the miners had cast all they had brought forth from the buried past that might otherwise have defamed their village and occupation. Everything foul lay in tumbled heaps, ten times and more the height of the Balakaither's lofty back, obscene statues, canid and crumbling, and human bones to which strips of dry flesh and hanks of hair still clung, and with them ten thousand men and women, those who, in seeking a private resurrection, had rendered their corpses forever imperishable, lay here like drunkards after their debauch, their crystal sarcophagi broken, their limbs relaxed in grotesque disarray, their clothing rotted or rotting, and their eyes blindly fixed upon the sky. And so you're right from what you said before. What we think of as mining is not, oh, I'm going to get my pickaxe and go find the ore, the, the ore of silver, the vein of, of silver ore. It's, I'm going to go into the past. I'm digging into the literal, like, uh, some sort of ancient facility and coming out with stuff. And the stuff that's too gross for us to sell, we throw it here in the garbage heap. And gross is broad because gross can be bodies and bones, but it can also be like obscene statues, uh, <laughs> apparently, which what could that? I don't you know. There's a I, wide like, range what of do those. the people of this world consider an obscene statue that I'm they don't so want to sell? Curious, right? <laughs> right. I'm so curious. Hey, uh, listeners, you know, we don't often call for fan fiction, <laughs> or, or not fan fiction, but fan art. You know, I, I don't always do that, but I am curious. You know, draw the scene for us. <laughs> give, me, give me the that. We want to see the statue, the obscene statues. And 10,000 people in it's crystal sarcophagi. <laughs> it's just piles of Funko Pops. It is just Funko Pops. God, it's <laughs> their Funko heads Pops. were much larger than their bodies, as if they could not have been... <laughs> Uh, they would need a sling to move themselves along the pathways they taken. Of course, these people must have been small as they <laughs> barely reached to my my ankle, and yet some towered above the others, a full knee tall. Uh, clearly, the kings and commanders of the smaller ones. Uh, eyes, beads of black, coal, <laughs> as if you could light them. <laughs> Their mouths removed <laughs> by some distant monarch. Like, that's like that's that's uh, that's book of the new sun. Is like mounds of uh, uh, Funko pops and cryopods lying in the in the rainforest. God, we yeah. We, to, to plug the the Patreon for a second, we we're about to record a Patreon episode Q and A episode, and we got a question that's like, why does any of this stuff matter? Why is the fact yep. that it's Funko Pops and cryopods and, you know, uh, rocket ships and and mm -hmm. riot police matter? I'm not going to answer mm -hmm. it now. To, an to hear the yeah. answer, because <laughs> I think it matters. To, to answer that, hear that answer, you'll have to listen to the Q&A. Yeah, you'll have to. Patreon.com slash range touch is down in the description below this episode, wherever you're listening to it. And uh, it's it's fun. It's good stuff. But yeah, we're going to do a big, massive Q&A episode over there, and it's up um, soon. I don't know the exact. I don't have the schedule right in front of me. It's not up today, but it will be up soon. And you can, of course, listen to our previous episode on Conan the Barbarian right now mm -hmm. as you're hearing this. And there will be more upcoming. But yeah, they're seeing all this. What do you think about this cryopod stuff? 
Because that's what it is. It's these people who I preserve it, right? themselves. Yeah, right? rich yeah. people who like put them put their. I don't. I love that they didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Fun little tragedy. This Here I saw a placard plastered to one of the the carved sarcophagi. Peter Thiel, it said. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Who knew the name of, uh, you know, it, his it, the name of this creature had turned into pure nothingness as the time marched forward, uh, and he was forgotten by the mind of the autark. Underneath it was a list of all the names of all the people whose blood he drunk. <laughs> <laughs> a series of additional qualifiers followed him. It seemed to me as if they were some sort of title, like... Uh, 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 oh gosh, what do you call it? Like an exultant, right? The CEO, the coup, the cuffo, <laughs> right? <laughs> Palantir, <laughs> U.S. Department of Treasury, all these things that had come to pass and mattered so much, and had, and had passed into history. Well, they yeah. go see Votalus. They go see Votalus. Just some like well, anime shit. Yeah. We talked about it. They fight on top of the thing, the the big yeah. creature. Yeah, but we didn't talk about what happens afterward, which is that this big old creature thing that's taking their cart, you know, down the pathway. Or they're no, they're they're on the back of it. It's not even in the cart, right? Uh they get there, they go to Votalus's house, and because he uh Severian has killed the guy who is driving it, uh he's headless there still driving this this creature this elephant thing just walks all the way up to Votalus's throne and Severian is such a huge badass right that he uh knocks this thing in the feet mm-hmm. like in the knees behind the scenes to make it kneel to Votalus and then Severian standing on the cart takes his big ass you know six foot tall sword and uh puts the pommel in front of his eyes in a <laughs> salute <laughs> right Oh, and then, it's so video game. It's, well, and, yeah. And Votalus's response is so good because Votalus smiled a thin smile that held many things, but amusement was one of them, and perhaps the foremost. I sent my men to fetch the headsman. He said, "I perceive they succeeded." <laughs> it's, it's so good. Well, and then he goes, "Is cool, sir." Yeah, they brought you the anti-headsman. There was a time when your own would have rolled on fresh-turned soil if it had not been for me. And then he looks Man. closer. He's like, oh, you're the kid. Yeah, I don't know how he knows that, but it well, doesn't matter. It's still very cool. Maybe he is a perfect member. We don't know. We haven't really spent yeah. time with Votos. Votos I guess is that's here. True. The man yeah. from the first chapter, he's here. Yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of like, uh, in my imagination, I don't know how you imagine this, um, it's, it's uh, you, you know, Charlie Hunnam. From uh, Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, per- uh-huh. Perhaps you've seen a film called Crimson Peak. I sure have. <laughs> yeah. Where they make him look like the biggest man alive. You yeah. know what I mean? Like he's uh-huh. just this hulking kind of Byronic dude. So I imagine like that, oh, yeah. but also Charlie Hunnam playing Robin Hood, right? Like mm-hmm. a combo of these two things, right? That I costuming, that kind is of great. big shape, you know, yeah. almost like bell shape to the body, right? Mm-hmm. But also like with the wit maybe of a Robin Hood. That's, that's the votalist in my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the votalist in my mind is extremely funny to me. We all have a votalist in our mind, Austin. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is this is. They put me in a machine and it woke it up. <laughs> do you know, Cameron? Do you know the the wrestler Chris Jericho? Yeah, I know Chris Jericho. Do you know that Chris Jericho's song in the current 
uh, promotion he's in is that the hook of it is that he's I'm become I'm become I'm becoming the Judas in the Judas in my mind. That is the hook for his theme song right. now. Right. And I just right. now want a wrestler to come out to I'm becoming the vocalist in my mind. <laughs> Look, you've got connections in the industry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can phone it in. Yeah, you know some <laughs> of those folks. Look, if you can get yeah. someone to agree to it, we can get the song. Yeah, yeah, I we'll get the song. Yes. On that one, yeah. uh-huh. This is like on Just King Things when you say we'll make that movie. We'll make that wrestler's <laughs> entrance music. <laughs> yeah. That's way easier than making that movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like in my hierarchy of stuff, making the movie, oh, that might take like six months of my life, you know? We'll get the same mm-hmm. music. This I can probably figure that out in a weekend. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, I can get that going. Um, but uh, so yeah, he meets Vodalus and 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 Thea is also there, right? Mm-hmm. So uh the kind of stuff. We of course, because we read earlier, you know that Vodalus Severian knows in his mind that Vodalus wants to bring back, you know, a world that has passed, mm-hmm. you know, the world's moved on and Vodalus wants to wind back the clock a little bit. And Severian earlier in the reading for today thought about the moment that uh, Vodalus gave Thea his laser gun, right? Mm-hmm. The weapon of the old world and took out his sword to defeat the people who were attacking him in the cemetery, uh, which uh, is the weapon of the new world. Right. You know, this is the thing. And that is probably a thing that we should be thinking about as we continue to interact with Vodalus, as we will over the next little bit. You know, he's not disappearing after this chapter. <laughs> the next chapter jumps to like a completely different point. It's like after right. Vodalus died. Right. He choked on a gobstopper. But it's worth thinking about that image, right? That Vodalus is the person who wants to bring in the old world, but mm-hmm. will also pass on the weapons of the old world to someone else because he trusts them with it. Mm. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. This is a thing worth thinking about. Mm hmm. That's it. Cool. Good app. Uh, uh, what one last uh, observation to make? The bit near the Please. beginning of Conciliator, where uh, Severian in narrator mode is like, sometimes I think about the covers of books as walls. Just gotta <laughs> gotta point that this. out, right? Yeah, he's talking, uh-huh. yeah, right, right, where he's like making mm-hmm. uh, uh, an explicit point of the fact that he like ended a volume and now has begun another. It's like, all right, yeah, we get it. You know what books are now, and you think you're really smart. <laughs> Look, you've seen like a hundred of them, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent. That is great. Um, the next reading that we will be doing that I need to pull up, I'm going to vamp a little bit here, uh, or someone else can vamp for a moment. I thought it was just okay. the next nine chapters. Is that not right? right, it, right. Is, uh, it is from chapter 10 to, yes, uh, well, to chapter 10 through 19. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so a little, just 10, 10 chapters, chapters. Yeah. next 10 chapters. Uh, and then the one after that will be through the end of the book. So we are all the rest of the books that we are doing in book of the new sun. They will all be, uh, three episodes rather than the four that we did. Um, and, uh, it'll be great over on the bonus ode feed. Um, you will very soon. Um, let me look and see when this drops, uh, next week. So on the 11th, um, uh, you will be able to go over there and hear us do a long, uh, Q and a episode that we're doing, uh, rather than crawl. Uh, and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we're answering a bunch of questions. We have a massive document and I think people are really going to enjoy that. So check that out. That's coming out one week from today. If you're listening to this, the day it comes out. Um, and if you're listening to it sometime in the future, you're already got it. The credits for the show are uh, important and sometimes I forget them. So now I have it in the document. 
so I can just read it. Smart. Cinderwell wrote and performed the theme song for this. You can find out more about Cinderwell's music by clicking on the link in the description down below. Sam Beck made the podcast art, uh, and you can find out more uh, by also clicking a link down there. And Jordan Mallory edited, edits, and produces the show. So anytime that we mess something up or uh, Austin coughs directly into the microphone, um, the reason you're not hearing it is because... Jordan mm-hmm. Mallory has edited it out. So everyone appreciate Jordan Mallory for doing that. We of course uh, are deeply grateful for working with all these people. We will be back in two weeks on the mainline thing with our next part of Claw the Conciliator, part two of Claw the Conciliator. Um, and uh, I think Michael's going to take us out. Oh my God. I forgot the poem. How does it go? It's been so long since we recorded. I'm not Severian. Jordan, I'll leave that in. <laughs> We've always Finally, the textual evidence that Michael is not Severian. That's right. <laughs> Finally, that's the, it's been the big fan theory. Yeah, this time <laughs> the big fan been. theory is <laughs> Michael's big uh, revelation. I'm Severian. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, admit these stacks so straight and tall with tomes lined end to end. How are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend. Thank you.